NSN, the Nahum Single Network, is on the road in Israel. Sponsored, brought to you by Aaron's Casino Farms. Make sure to take Aaron's Casino Farms on the road with you this Pesach for all your Pesach needs. We have an amazing lineup, an incredible schedule. We are here in Israel. We are starting at Koren Publishers in their beautiful Jerusalem headquarters. We'll be here throughout uh, the Monday JM and the AM that you're listening to uh, live from Israel. And then we have a full schedule of amazing shows that we'll be doing in different places in Israel uh, all through this week. And uh, culminating on the, this coming Thursday, March the 7th. We welcome everybody out there to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. And certainly comment during this very interesting broadcast that comes to you live from Koren Publishers in Jerusalem. We have many wonderful sponsors, great uh, uh, organizations and, uh, and different outfits here in Israel that we're going to be uh, speaking to this week and featuring on the air. And there's a lot going on this week in general that we have to tell you about. So it's a very exciting week. We are on the road. There's nothing like being on the road. And there's nothing like being on the road in Israel. So thank you to Aaron's Casino Farms. And thank you to all of you for tuning in and for being part of this amazing listening experience. Miriam L. Wallach is the general manager of the Nahum Siegel Network, and she is here in Jerusalem, right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Miriam, good morning, I guess. Well, good afternoon, but... It's good afternoon to us and good morning to our listeners. Exactly. And unfortunately, I heard the news that uh, we missed a snowstorm in the United States. You know how much much that troubles me. I'm sure the Long Island Railroad (laughs) is running smoothly today. Uh, and the New York City public school system is closed, and it's a uh, different type of day for our listeners in the New York, New Jersey area. It's an actual snow day, as opposed to the last time we were on the road, where it was a virtual snow day. You remember that? Yes. Down in Atlanta. I'm still tan from that snow day in Atlanta. <laughs> but this snow day in New York, I assume, has brought a little bit more precipitation than the one that we had down in Atlanta. Anyway, so it's a little bit of a different Monday, but we are calling it, obviously, a back-to-school, back-to-work edition. We do, know, we do know of some schools in the New York area that are open today, some of them maybe with late starts, etc., uh, but nothing's going to prevent some of the schools from opening. Uh, those schools that follow the New York City public school system, they're closed for obvious reasons. Uh, so that's what's happening back to 6,000 miles away. We got here yesterday on Sunday, ar- arrived here in uh, the state of Israel, and uh, as we've been telling everybody over the last couple of weeks, we have an amazing lineup this week, all starting with Koren Publishers. It's been a, uh, a fascination of ours, Koren Publishers, since we founded sure. the Nahum Siegel Network. There was a time we had a weekly show mm-hmm. with the uh, folks here at Koren Publishers. Buy the book. Right, buy the book. And every time we come here, uh, we try to uh, stop by and see what's new and see what they're doing. And they are among the most innovative and among the most... Uh, not just academically inclined, but academically inclined in the most beautiful manner, from the from the layout of their books to their to the creativity in their academia. Uh, there's so much going on here at Corn. We'll have a chance to speak with many of the guests here today. And as uh, you remind us, uh, and as I've been reminding the audience, we have to thank Aaron's Casino Farms. Uh, they have this uh, amazing ability to get people ready for Pesach. Some people go on the road for Pesach. Mm-hmm. And they can take care of everyone's Pesach needs at Aaron's Casino Farms in Queens. I was there this past Friday, by the way. And? Since the last time I was on JM and the AM, I have already paid a long visit to Aaron's Casino Farms. If anybody's looking for you on a Friday. (laughs) It was a very, very productive visit. Very productive. Great. A lot of good stuff. 
The manager of the store said, where were you last Friday? I said, it was the YU game. The only thing that takes away from my shopping at Aaron's right. is if there's a very big occasion like each university basketball game. On a Friday at 12 o'clock. On a Friday at noon, Correct. exactly. Uh, but I was there, and therefore I'm encouraging people, number one, as the message is this week, because we're on the road, uh, if you're going on the road for Pesach, let Aaron's prepare all that for you. Uh, and they'll ship it, they'll send it. And help prepare, help you prepare for Pesach. Correct. Right. But I'm going to add something else. Okay. And that is now before Purim and before Pesach, you're going to find one of the most amazing shopping experiences at Aaron's Casino Farms in Queens. So mm-hmm. walk into the store, and eventually we'll tell everybody the whole... Right, we're de- not there yet. Right, but we'll eventually tell everybody about the development of their Pesach store. Walk in, and you will see exactly what we mean about a great shopping experience. So they're sponsoring this whole journey for us here to the Holy Land. We are at Current Publishers in Jerusalem, and we get an opportunity to speak to some very... Very interesting people today. I had an opportunity over the weekend to check out some of the new books. We only have three hours for this show. And I, I say only I because there's enough content. Not, I mean, we have four pages of, of, of prep here. Right. Um, a lot of guests. Which, which, is, which is phenomenal. But if you walk 10 feet into this building, into this office, you know that there's enough content here for a week. Right. I should basically cancel, cancel our other sponsors, <laughs> just camp out here until Thursday. The, the issue really is that there are certain guests that I could sit with for a long, I know, long time. I know. I know. And by the way, I apologize to our listeners in advance because I'm going right. to have to cut you off. Right. I'm going to have to look at you. There are a lot you. of people we got to get yep. to. So, so rest assured, listeners and Nachum will invite people back. Right. Hopefully. Yes. Hopefully we'll have them on for even longer length interviews. Correct. Uh, but today we want to meet everybody. We want to get a taste of what's going on here. And there are some revolutionary things happening between the Talmud and between some of the things that are happening with uh, Rav Steinzaltz and some of the things that are happening uh, uh, with some of their unique authors um, here at Cohen's. A lot going on, and we will um, and we will explore a lot of that here this morning at JM in the AM. It's interesting because, and, and I'm sure you'll touch upon this, but um, Judaica publishing houses are in more need than ever, whereas other publishing houses of secular material are very much going digital and yeah. wondering about the publishing of books and any kind of print material, how long they're going to be needed, whereas we know Corin has to continually and does continually update and innovate because this is not going out of style. We need this more than ever. So it's it, a lot of the publishing houses you just alluded to are actually going out of business. Correct. And really slowing things down. You walk in here, <laughs> and yeah. There's an avalanche Correct. of books that are and that we're not even getting to during right. this show. Right. There's a tremendous amount of content. We're sitting in a room filled with books, and you are not even getting to a one one hundredth of this content. I mean, the shas behind you. You're going to talk yeah. about the Steinsaltz shas, and obviously this is a very very big year um, for shas in general. But there's so much going on here. Whereas, as you mentioned, other publishing houses and secular forums are closing their doors because they have they're, they're, they have become obsolete. Now, there are a couple of people we've got to thank. Already. Um, as usual, our home base in the city of Jerusalem is the Inbal Hotel. Yep. And uh, the Inbal Hotel has uh, given us an opportunity not just to stay at the Inbal, which they always do, which is always so comfortable and wonderful, but they gave us a chance to explore the, uh, the new floors, um, the 50... Beautiful 2019 rooms that have been uh, completed at the Inbal. Uh, so we got to see those and um, and uh, and 
really have an amazing stay so far, and I'm sure that'll continue. Yeah, they're fantastic. And we also were were reminded that the new restaurant opened. Sophia closed, and O2 opened. It is beautiful. I was in there last night. It is beautiful. Crazy ambiance. Very cool. Beautiful restaurant, a destination spot for everybody in Israel. For sure. Uh, so that's all happening at the Inbal Hotel. So a big thank you to uh, Ronnie, the general manager, and to everybody who's been so nice. There is a great staff at the Inbal, just a wonderful yep. staff, and they really know how to take care of their guests. And we thank them very much for that. Um, so there you have it. A lot of things happening, a lot of things going on. And here we are at Corin Publishers in Jerusalem, Israel. Our NSN On The Road in Israel week has officially begun. We welcome your comments on the app. Go to the NSN, Malcolm Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and feel free to comment away. I feel like we've just started a marathon. Not a JM and the AM marathon, right. but maybe a JM and the AM marathon. It's going to be a long, yep. fruitful, interesting week. That's for sure. With it is going to be 26.2 miles. And the, the Monday show today is a show. Tomorrow and Wednesday, we start really piling on with a, multiple stuff that's going to be happening, a lot of things that we're going to be doing in terms of broadcasting. So as the week goes on, it's going to get, well, I guess that's how a marathon works, right? Mm-hmm. You pace yourself at the beginning, and all of a sudden... And you never look end, back at what everyone else is doing. You just keep right. focus on the fact that there's just a number of miles left. What a pep talk, huh? There you go. Look at Yoni. He's completely energized because That's of That's Yoni speech. energized? That's Yoni energized. I did a terrible job then. <laughs> terrible job. We'll, Have some more grapes, Yoni. <laughs> we'll, we'll go to Derek Achim and start welcoming guests here at Cohen Publishers. Keep listening to the Nachum Siegel Network.
JM in the AM, that's uh, Levi Cohen with Matana here at JM in the AM before that Derech Achim. Uh, as we broadcast at the very beginning of our journey here in Jerusalem, NSN, the Nachum Single Network, is on the road here in Israel, sponsored by Aaron's Casino Farms. Make sure to take Aaron's Casino Farms on the road with you this Pesach for all your Pesach needs. We, of course, are on the road here in Israel, and our journey begins at Koren Publishers. It began as a small family-owned company in 1962 and has expanded into a global enterprise with publications in multiple languages and distribution to Jewish communities around the world. Koren has become such an important part of Jewish life 
all around the globe. Matthew Miller is publisher here at Cohen Publishers Jerusalem and its imprints. And we get an opportunity to speak about the history of Cohen and, of course, what's happening today. First of all, thank you very much for welcoming us here to Koren in Jerusalem. It's a pleasure, and um, is it really true you came here to avoid the snow? <laughs> we were talking about that. Some of us are very happy we're missing those storms, trust me. Well, this is amazing. You, you've been with Koren for how long? Twelve years. And what was it like 12 years ago? When you got here, how would you describe Koren and its history from at that point? Well, Twelve years ago, it was um, three people, and they were publishing the Tanakh for the cities and a couple of Sidirim uh, and Machsarim and uh, today we have about probably 60 employees plus about 150 part-time um, we're selling now actively throughout North America, US we have salespeople in US, Canada, UK and of course here in Israel right. and uh, more importantly I think we've grown we've grown the brand, we've grown the, um, the imprints each has its own Meaning, and uh, I'm happy to talk about that if you wish. Oh, we will talk about it. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> it's obvious when you came in, you had a certain vision. You had a certain direction you wanted to see Koren move in. I think if anybody um, realized the implications of what they do, they wouldn't do anything. <laughs> um, I didn't know what I, I didn't realize the implications at the time. I thought, you know, I'm a Zionist, Dati Leumi, modern Orthodox guy. I didn't feel there was anything on the market for me. And I thought, having spent 20 years in England, getting to know Rabbi Sachs, and um, I just felt that there was a place that maybe if I could marry Koren with initially Rabbi Sachs, and then later on uh, with Rabbi Steinsaltz's works, um, we might have something. And boy, did we. Because back then, again, when you first got here, there was no real association with specific personalities. Would that be a, a safe assumption? Other than uh, Eliyahu Koren himself. Right. Yeah. Um, interesting character. Right. A very the, interesting character. But no, nobody of... Uh, no. But now what we do is um, we don't we don't have one Rebbe, so to speak. We work with outstanding, outstanding people. Um, like I said, Rabbi Lord Sachs, right. uh, Rav Steinsaltz. We work with uh, Yeshiva University. We work with the... Orthodox Union, we work with the United Synagogue in England, we work with the ORD in Germany now, the Orthodox Rabbinah uh, Deutschland. Um, we're working uh, with many outstanding individuals within the Orthodox spectrum. Matthew Miller with us, he leads Koren Publishers. By the way, you mentioned the, the different imprints, so I, I assume we're talking about Koren first. Koren we reserve for Sidurim, Machsarim, Tanakh, um, Talmud. All right. Magid is a an imprint we started for um, Jewish intellectual thought, contemporary Jewish writing, um, for the Rav Lichtenstein, Rav Soloveitchik, um, oh, but, 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 but the entire right. spectrum of modern of, of orthodoxy, not just modern orthodox, but right. traditional orthodoxy as well. And uh, Toby, we reserve for uh, so Jewish culture, Jewish fiction, Jewish literature, some politics. Right, and then Ofek and Menorah, or uh... Ofek. We Ofek is an alliance we made with uh, Rav Shoshana from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was in the Tel's Yeshiva, and we um, he has done outstanding work in uh, going back to the sources, going back to medieval manuscripts, and publishing them. And we've become their distribution publishing partner. It's been wonderful, and um, it worked. And Menorah is a separate one, or menorah is a small one that we're 
uh, using just for some. Now, why, from a publisher standpoint, why does there? Why is it beneficial to separate the works that are under Koren and Magid, as an example? Why is it beneficial to to have a separate imprint that has an identity instead of it all being under a Koren umbrella? Because brands have a meaning. Brands have a real meaning. Um, in <clears throat> under Koren, you know, we we like to think it's we like to think that. Sidarim and Tanachim and Talmud, they're the great works. Um, they are beyond the politics. The classics. They're beyond politics. Exactly. The classical texts. Whereas, um, you know, under um, Menorah, under, under Magid specifically, we our, our point of view, you know, Chabad has a point of view. Art Scroll has a point of view. I'm not going to be disingenuous and say we don't have a point of view. Our point of view is that there's a spectrum of orthodox there are many points of view there's many points of view so you know we published you know we we're, we're thrilled you know we published uh rav mordechai Villig. we published right. rav avi weiss right. it's a huge but it's a continuum and i think it's important to have all these voices you know rav bleich uh rav Sachs, of course you know um there's so many voices and it's such a richer symphony right um speaking with matthew miller publisher here at koran we're in jerusalem at the beginning of our nsn on the road week in israel um, you mentioned, and, and you've alluded to it a couple of times in this conversation already, the, the contribution that Rabbi Sachs has made to the Jewish world, in this case specifically through your company, specifically through your imprints, um, which of course many of us have taken notice of, plus Rav Steinsaltz. It's no secret that uh, the work that you... On the contrary, had, we're delighted and we're, we're very no, proud. Yeah, we're very proud. Of course, proud of, and you should be. Mm. But my point is that that should I assume that without the... the um, the regular products that have been coming out, and I mean regular meaning on a regular basis, coming out from people like this, it would be almost impossible to maintain this type of brand. That what One of the reasons that Corin continues to be so strong is because there's so much content coming out from international figures like that? Yeah, it's a very rich vein. It's a very rich vein that we're mining. Um, when I started, when I restarted Corin, let me say, when we restarted Corin, it never occurred to me to do a shas. Right. You know, I mean, who in their right mind would do that? <laughs> and now, uh, seven and a half, well, we've been working now. We're actually finished. Um, it's over. It's yeah, completed. yeah, we're, we did it. We did it. Um, there's, there's 42 volumes in the set. Volume 41 just went to press. Volume 42 is going to press next week, uh, next month. And we're done. I mean, wow. Um, so, and, 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 and Rabbi Sachs is um, is uh, the 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 um, the Megerman edition of the new Sachs Chumash and the new Sachs right. Tanakh. It's going to be well. I mean, I'm, I've been reading it. It's it's wonderful. It's we're we're doing something that nobody's ever done before in, in these new editions, and um, it's going to be great. It seems to us that he's coming out with material constantly. Nothing wrong with that, right? <laughs> Um, to the consumer, Rabbi, Rabbi Steinsaltz Rabbi Sachs, and, and Rabbi Steinsaltz. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 but there's so much. Stuff. Like it's hard for the consumer to believe that someone, that a regular human, can in fact produce so much material constantly. It's 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 really an amazing feat. Look, you're dealing with two particularly um, special, unique individuals. Right. Um, I don't know. They're on a different plane. They're on a different plane than me. You know, I'm not that smart. I'm just uh, glad that I'm associated with people who are that smart. But uh, they're just, they're just, and they're, they're so pleasant to be with. They're, they're just a pleasure to be with both of them. I don't know how they get the balance right. 
I don't know how right. to do it, but um, they're human. They're um, deeply religious figures, but seriously, deeply religious figures. And you know, you you spend time with with either of them, and you know, you're transported. You're just transported away. It's it's funny, as but, but but many of our. You know, I was just going to say, but, but I mean, there are I, only two of maybe hundreds. Right, of it's, it's so published. funny you say that because I was just about to say that when I was preparing for this for this program. And I'm reading some of the books that we're either featuring or, you know, that are by some of the authors that we're going to be speaking to. I'm saying to myself, my gosh, they are so invested in the topic. They are so, because they've given their, you could tell they've given their, their, their heart and soul in order to give this information to the public. Um, yeah. They're, That's accurate, huh? It's absolutely accurate. But again, I don't want to. We, you know, we are not just a. Um, we're not. We do publish other people, by the yeah. way, just in case. Yeah, but there are, <laughs> yeah, but, in, yeah, in the hundreds, hundreds of right? the hundreds yeah. of them. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, I mean, the few minutes we have, I figured we should certainly sure, mention course. some of the some of the hallmark figures. Uh, speaking with Matthew Miller, publisher here at uh, at Cohen Publishers, and uh, I guess we owe you a big Mazal Tov on the Shas. That's for sure. Uh, we know the Siyum Shas is going to be happening at the... Uh, I thought you were going to be Mazal Tov at my daughter's wedding. And Mazal Tov at your daughter's Thank wedding you. as well. <laughs> Where they will or will not be giving out a Shas to each guest. Uh, I love my guests, <laughs> but not that much. But I am doing a new beer cone. <laughs> oh, there you go. And uh, imagine how many beer cone you have and how many varieties, you know, you, you have... Um, well, I've got five kids. <laughs> so for each one, each each one gets their own. Huh? Yeah. But I'm saying in terms of Koren, different beer kodim, different sidurim, different you know meeting. Look, the this needs. is what we do. This is what we do. I mean, like just a little thing like beer kodim. What would be the big deal? We're doing beer kodim, not just nusuch ashkenaz, but it's really important. I mean, the values of. Let me just make a little speech. Sure. The, the values of Koren when we first came together with them, where they they pushed all my buttons. You know, they were. Halachically, no, no discussion. They were the highest level of halachic authority and textual purity, the best. Design was very. When you important. mean that, you mean when the I classic. It, when I took it over, the classic you mean corn. The classic, the classic right, corn. Right. The design was always important. There's always, you know, it's something that's always appealed to me. And you know, they were Zionists. You know, they were the original Zionists going way back to, you know, they they fought in the wars. Mm-hmm. Yet when we came in, we added another value, and that was they would say bridges. We build bridges. You know, whether it's Rav Sabato in English, Rabbi Sachs in Hebrew. We're now publishing in German and Spanish. Um, we are trying to get this message across that there is a modern world that a, an Orthodox Jew can be very comfortable in. Um, and um, I just feel that, um, you know, Nisachim, we have published, for example, not just the classic Ashkenaz stuff that you that you're familiar mm-hmm. with in North America, we published the first ever Amharic uh, Hebrew sidur, the first ever Jewish Amharic um, Amharic uh, Huma. Thank you. You're holding it. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, this is it. I'm I'm more proud of this than I am of the Sachs sidur. Because, wow, that's because, quite a statement. No, because who else does this? You know, I'm so proud that we've reached out to the uh, Ethiopian community. I'm so proud that many of our Birkanim, they have Ashkenaz and Sfardi together, you know, because it's important. Um, we have to build bridges. If anything worries me, it's the increasing gap between North American mm. Jewry and Israeli. We have to work together to bring that t- closer. And, and, and among the bridges you've built, 
uh, is, as you mentioned earlier, with some of the prominent major Jewish organizations who have become, I don't want to say publishing houses, but in some ways have become like uh, like annexes for you, right? Have they become partners with you? I think I think they think I'm annexes for them. But, <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're I think partners in the full sense of the word. Right. Yeah, and, no, and, and it's a happy it's a happy partnership. You know, whether it's the ORD in Germany or the United Synagogue in England or the uh, the OU or the RCA, we we just published the new RCA. CD right. Um, yeah, no, we're we're thrilled. We're well, thrilled. all this is hard to believe. It took only twelve years to get to this point. Frankly, um, we work very hard. We have such a good team. We have such a we have we got such a great team. I can't begin to tell you. You're going to meet some of them today. Sure. But they're yeah. I've been in business now for forty years. This is the best team I've ever worked with. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah. I'll tell you. Uh, congratulations on all of this. Thank you are, you ma- so you are making such a worldwide impact. We certainly feel it in North America, that's for sure, and, and in the New York, New Jersey area. Well, fools but- rush in where angels dare not tread. <laughs> Let me tell you that. <laughs> that's the philosophy behind the entire operation. I guess so. <laughs> but I also mentioned that we were in Atlanta, saw an incredible display at the Young Israel of Toko Hills of oh, everything yeah, Koren, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, that's, that, that's good show, good part. It, it good certainly partners. is. And, and and then in general, the again, through the personalities and the different works, the the impact that you're making worldwide is amazing. All from this office here in Jerusalem. Well, from the 50 to 100 people that are working here, yeah. Right. Thank you so much for hosting us Nothing, here today. Thank you, and welcome to Israel. And I State. appreciate it. And next time, make Aliyah. <laughs> that's right, that's that's, okay. That's a good message, actually. Take Matthew it. Miller is publisher of Cohen Publishers in Jerusalem and all of its imprints, and uh, we have officially kicked off our visit to Cohen here on a Monday morning at JM in the AM.
Mordechai Shapiro, Machar is the name of that one. We are live in Jerusalem. NSN is on the road in Israel. Sponsored by Aaron's Casino Farms. Make sure to take Aaron's Casino Farms on the road with you this Pesach for all your Pesach needs. Today we're at Corinth Publishers. Had a great opening discussion with our host Matthew Miller, publisher here at Corinth. Alex Drucker is with us. He's retail and U.S. sales manager for Corinth, responsible for the sales and distribution to stores around the world, including... The United States, Canada, the UK, Europe, South Africa, and Australia. Alex Drucker, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. You have to keep track of a lot of different areas of the globe, huh? I try. <laughs> I, I do try my best. What type of team exists in places like Great Britain, Australia, etc., that you are in constant uh, contact with? We have a network of fantastic bookstores all over the world. Um, some, probably 200 or so uh, globally. Um I'm in touch with them as often as I can be. How how long have you held this position? I have been at Karin a little over two years. And I ask that question because the impression we get is that people uh, like to shop online mm. more than you know more than they were used to shopping through you know, different stores, etc. What do you find out there? Are are the stores still strong? Um, there's definitely you know uh, a hit has been taken by some of the stores by the online retail. Uh, world, um, but several stores are still going strong. You know, stores that have been parts of their communities for generations. Um, you know, for example, you know, uh, just as an example, Levine's in uh, in Manhattan has right. been there for you know over a hundred years, right. um, and you know people do try and support their local bookstores, and we do our best to try and help the stores. Um, remain part of their communities as best as we can. All right. Next time you speak with Danny, you make sure to <laughs> send regards from his neighbors. Those are us. Um, all right. There's a great history to Corin, as you know. Uh, that's no secret. Mm. And there's always innovation going on. Now, we're told that there is a that people should pay careful attention because there's a new digitized font for Rashi in the Corin Chumash, correct? Correct. Um, I mean, Corin, one of the things that makes us so special is the... Uh, various fonts that are used throughout our Sfarim, um, in particular the Tanakh and the Chumash. Um, the Koran Tanakh being, you know, the first project for Eliyahu Koran, the uh, the founder of the company, um, and um, the the font that he developed uh, for that. He his background was as a graphic designer and a typographer, um, and so when he decided to create the first Tanakh by Jews in the land of Israel, um, he felt that there was a need for a unique font for that. 
um, both in terms of uh, something that looked aesthetically pleasing, something that was nice to look at, something that was easy to read, um, but also in the same way that you know the Gemara talks about in uh, Masechah Shabbos and in uh, Menachos about the the importance of the Ketav Stam, right. um, that you know the Torah has Ketav Stam, and the Tanakh should have its own special font. And so he spent a long time. We have uh, I have a few here as well. Some yeah. examples of his hand sketches uh, of early fonts, both for the uh, Tanakh. And the Siddur, which uses a different font, um, and his uh, the Rashi as well, um, and uh, working with optometrists and other experts to try and find. And something. you're not kidding. He literally worked with doctors. Worked with doctors to to create a font that was easy on the eye, both in terms of reading and uh, that would reduce eye fatigue to stop your eyes getting tired as well. Um, right, and as an exact like a, a perfectionist as he was. Uh, working with his students, he innovated at the time. Um, you know, clear stickers that uh, he printed the nikud, the uh, um, the vowels, and the uh, trop, the tami hamikra, um, and each sticker was placed. You know, and he would write notes to his students saying, "You need you need to move it half a millimeter to the right, so it's the exact center." Um, and then beyond that as well, you know, developing different versions of each letter. So we have here uh, just an example that. In the the Rashi font, which is newly digitized, right. um, four different versions of the letter Taf, and each one would be used differently depending on the letter that comes before. So or they're after. all they're all in practice. They're, they're all in practice depending on what letter comes before, after, above, or below, and which Nikud is used in all of those letters and the letter itself. So this is based on, based on his. Um, it's based on his sketches and his designs. Entirely. So even the new font even is still font. based on his The new research. fonts aren't even new fonts. The new fonts are his right. research, his designs. We've just digitized them. Right. Um, and as we have here, you know, his his hand sketches, which were then turned into printing plates, you know, printing of old with, you know, a real stamp. Uh, so just so were. our listeners understand, you just showed me four versions of a letter tough. Right. Depending on where that letter is, yep. position of the word or just which where it follows in terms of what letter it follows? What letter it follows, position of the word, well, what's above it, what's below it, which that will determine which tough correct he would want to use correct. That's um, unbelievable. Just, and you know, it just for example, you know, we have an example of a word here where we're using two different tufts in right, one word, right. uh, just depending on you know, there's a shva here and a, a kamatz here with a dagesh, you know, a samach before and nun before, right. so there's no overlap of letters. Letters aren't sort <laughs> of uh, you know breaking into others. And everything is kept as clean and as crisp and as clear and as pure as we possibly can do, both because there is a kedusha to uh, the Tanakh and to the Chumash um, and the Siddur, uh, and also because it makes it easier and nicer to read uh, and to learn from or to daven with. Um, and it's the same thing with the Siddur, where there's a, a separate font in the Siddur to the Tanakh, because the Tanakh font should retain its kedusha. Um, and the format of the Siddur it was also done on purpose. Each sort of composite phrase of a tefillah uh, is on a new line to make it easier. And in tefillah, when uh, there's a pasuk being quoted, the pasuk is written in the Koran Tanakh font, whereas the rest of the tefillah is written in the Koran Siddur font. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you gave us the example of this word that has two tufts in it. The word is nitpayasta. Mm -hmm. And the first tuf, which has no dagesh in it, has a long has two long sides to it. Right. The last tuff of the word, which has a digation, has a kamatz underneath it. Correct. That has a short right leg and a much longer left, left leg. leg. Indeed. Indeed. And this is all because of all the reasons you mentioned earlier. Yeah, to keep it clean, to keep it 
pures to make it easier to read, to stop your eyes getting tired so that you can sit and learn Rashi for longer um, and just make it a more pleasurable experience as you're learning. Do these fonts make it into the Talmud? Uh, they did, the uh, and in the Rashi as well. The uh, Quran Talmud Bavli has a uh, vowelized and punctuated Rashi, um, making it much easier to, to learn. Uh, and Which the, is one of the original things where Steinsaltz did with his own shots, Exactly, right? exactly. And um, you know, and that, that is now digitized as well. Everything's very clear. There's lots of sort of white space around each letter, so everything is uh, is clear and easy to read. You can see the beginning and end of the words very clearly. Um, yeah. And same thing with the Tosfot. So we haven't punct- we haven't vowelized uh, the Tosfot in the current type of Bavli, but there is punctuation. Anyone right. who's you know, sat learning a Tosfot knows it makes a big difference where the question mark goes. That's for sure. Um, and so... You know, with with a different each different letter and different version of each letter, it makes everything much more enjoyable but easier experience as well. We're speaking with Alex Drucker here at Koren. All right, before I get back to your other role and uh, or your main role mm. in terms of global sales, etc., is there anything else you want to mention to us regarding letters and uh, words? I mean, other to say than that, it, this was a a real uh, labor of of love. Uh, by Elio Karen is something that we continue today. That our, we are known for our font. People do love our font. That the as well the Matthew uh, was mentioning before, sort of the inclusiveness uh, of Karen. That the diff, the two main different fonts, the Tanakh and the Sidor, are both based on the different um, minhagim. The uh, Karen Tanakh being based on the Ashkenazic tradition of writing letters. So the Aleph is you know slightly different depending on uh, you know the the direction of writing. We'll come back in one second. Um, but the Siddur font is based on the Sephardic tradition. Well, you're showing me two Alephs right now. Um, the one on the left looks much more familiar to me. The, the young Nahum Siegel learned, <laughs> learned that Aleph. Right. So the one on the left is uh, our Tanakh Aleph, uh, based on the Ashkenazic tradition. And I was speaking with our graphic designer, Eliyahu Miskav, uh, who's actually the one who discovered uh, Eliyahu Curran's um, original sketches uh, of the Rashi font, right. um, which we've now digitized, um, he was explaining to me, this is something I didn't know, is that there's a different tradition of Ashkenazim and Svadim of how they write their letters. And it's based on a number of different factors, um, including the direction of the writing, of, uh, writing in the lang- the secular languages of where they, yeah. wherever they live. And so just Arabic to remind our listeners, right we're talking about the printed letter. We're not talking the, about script correct, here. We're correct. printed, regular, non-Rashi, regular block letter. Right? Indeed. Um, so uh, depending on the pens they were using and <laughs> the, the direction in which they were used to writing and the type of ink and the ambient humidity in the countries in which they were living would affect how the ink was absorbed into the paper led to a development of two different traditions of how to write different letters. Um, and... Elio Karin, when he was designing the Tanakh font, himself being Ashkenazi, being from uh, from Nuremberg originally, um, you know, defaulted to the Ashkenazic letters, and the Tanakh font is uh, based loosely on the Ashkenazic um, tradition, and is reminiscent of Ketav Stam, of uh, the writing of Sefer Torah. It's reminiscent. It's not exactly the same, but it's it's uh, similar to, and the Siddur uses the Sephardi tradition. It's both partially uh, to be more inclusive. Also, because it looks nice. Right, got um, it. <laughs> being a graphic designer, you know, he was always uh, aware of the way things looked, and things should look nice and pretty because we want to use the things that look nice. All right, in our final minutes here, um, when you look at the globe and mm. you see the way people are purchasing Koren products, are you sometimes amazed that certain parts of the world are gravitating toward? Certain publications and other parts of the world are gravitating toward others. Are there are there, in, are there any interesting quirks you could you could 
tell us that are really big sellers somewhere that surprises <laughs> you or may not have done as well in certain areas and that surprises you? Excellent, excellent question. Um, something that does shock us, is what shocks me is the uh, range of locations from which I receive phone calls and emails, be it from uh, Nigeria, China, Korea, Japan. They're reading um, the books. They're reading the books. <laughs> they're buying the books, thankfully, as well. Um, there is a big tradition of learning Talmud in the Far East right. uh, for reasons that I don't understand. Right. I'm sure someone can, can explain <laughs> to us. We've heard about um, that. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we are all over the world. It's amazing. But anything shocking? Like, I can't believe that in this area of this country, this book has done so well. Anything like that or not? Um, Does Rabbi Sachs do better in Great Britain because he's from Great Britain? I think uh, not necessarily. I think Rabbi Sachs has has a universal right, a universal true. voice. Right, that's true. Um, no, I you know I in think his hometown there's <laughs> no big spike in sales. <laughs> Rabbi Sachs is, is popular. It, it, he really is. This isn't you know this I isn't just that. a sales speak. He's really popular uh, everywhere. Um, no, I mean it. It's, I do find it fascinating. You know where where we're getting emails from, phone calls from, where orders are coming from. And it really is um, all over. It really is all over the world. Um, you know, we're in almost I think all fifty states, including Alaska and Hawaii. Right. Uh, and the the Talmud Babli for the current Talmud Babli, for example, the Noe edition um, is being used in I think nearly thirty countries uh, around the world. Pretty amazing. Thanks so much for joining us here Thank today. Thank you for having me, Alex Drucker. We're here at uh, Koran, everybody. As NSN continues to be on the road all through this week. Sponsored by Aaron's Casino Farms. We're here at Current Publishers today meeting a variety of people on uh, so many different topics, so many different interesting areas we could explore. Rabbi Ruvain Ziegler is here. He is editorial director of Current Publishers and director of trade books. He heads the entire Magid enterprise, planning the publishing schedule and overseeing the editorial board and deciding what to publish. I'm laughing only because I can only imagine how difficult a job you have deciding what comes out and when and why, right? There's a why behind it also, right? There's definitely a why. I can only imagine. Um, I do want to clarify. Yeah, I sure. don't decide by myself what yeah, we I come can, out with. I we have an editorial board. There's a team, huh? Yes. Um, what does the calendar look like? Why, what, is the, what are some of the factors that go into figuring out when, in fact, something comes to the market? Well, first of all, there's right now is a period of tremendous, just as this outburst of creativity going on in the Jewish world. We get literally dozens of manuscripts a month. Uh, and Seriously? Yes, and I, in English and in Hebrew. Who reads them? Are you one of the people who reads them or not? Uh, yeah, I mean, we have, we, have, we have a whole bunch of readers. And they will be unsolicited. A lot. Well, some some people we go out and we solicit if there's an author we're interested in, or sometimes there's a topic we're interested in, and we'll say who could write about this. Right. Um, and but we get tons of unsolicited manuscripts from people we've heard of, from people we haven't heard of. Some of those have been published. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I mean, we do have institutional partnerships, right. and we work, but uh, we get. Uh, interestingly, I mean. We, I think we get as many in Hebrew as in English. We publish as many books a year in Hebrew as in English. I mean, here we're talking mainly about the English right. because of your listeners. Sure. Um, one of the things that we're trying to do, actually, is to create this cross-pollination between the English-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking worlds. We're trying, in fact, like when we publish something in one language, very often we'll say to ourselves, is this relevant to the other, to the other language? You know, if it's in Hebrew, do you think this would work in English? Well, it's do a you good think- example of that, something that recently has worked in both. 
Um, well, first of all, we've been taking authors like, and I'm not going to mention him again because he's going to come up so much, Rabbi Sachs. Right. He was unknown in Israel a few years ago, even though he was the chief rabbi of England and he was a very famous public intellectual. But and the certainly average, better known in the U.S. But Right, but the average Israeli had not heard of him because he hadn't published in Hebrew. Uh, so we made an effort to start publishing him in Hebrew to build awareness of him. We even took responsibility for putting out his weekly parsha on the internet in Hebrew to build awareness of him so that when the books would come out, people would know who he was. That's one, that's one direction. Also, in the other direction, uh, we have, uh, in, just in recent years, we've put out books by various Israeli uh, rabbis, uh, Rosh Yeshiva, like uh, Rav Sherlo, uh, uh, Rav Yoel Binun we're putting out right. soon, Rav Elchanan Samet we're putting out soon, uh, Rav Benny Lau, uh, also uh, very f- people who you've probably uh, heard about uh, who are gaining a presence in America, like Sivan Rav Meir, sure. we put out her book in English, mm-hmm. we, we're putting out soon Rabbanit Yamima Mizrahi in English. She's very popular. Yes, uh, and so so we want each side to know we want we want to create this cross fertilization. We have some very exciting books coming out. I can reveal some of the secrets. Yeah, why not? Uh, one of our most popular books in the past year was a book by Rabbi Dov Zinger. He's uh, the Rosh Yeshiva. Um, his name, the name of his yeshiva, is escaping me at the moment. Okay. In Kfar Etzion. Um and uh, he wrote a very fascinating book on tefillah. The what's interesting about it is it's not the history of tefillah. It's not even analyzing you know the words in tefillah. It's basically exercises to do to help your davening. Nice. So he starts off each chapter with a quote from, sometimes from Hasidut, sometimes from a Midrash, from a Gemara. Then he has a thought, and then he has exercises that you can do. He even calls them recipes for prayer. (laughs) So this is something that people in America started to read this, and they said, why doesn't this exist in English? So we said, let's do it. Let's translate it into English. Amazing. Rabbi Ruvain Ziegler is with us, editorial director of Koren and director of Trade Books. Um, it's no secret that one of the attractions that certain people have had to Koren has been the works of the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik, the works of Aaron Lichtenstein, uh, and other scholars who generally are called modern Orthodox scholars, whether that's an accurate portrayal or not is not for this conversation. But that's generally, tell me about that category and how it's grown over the years. Well, those, you know, you just picked the two authors who are closest to my heart. Right. Uh, I devoted about, uh, you know, close to two decades to putting out Rav Soloveitchik's writings for manuscript, uh, which is a whole story in itself, and a very exciting experience. I spent more than a decade just having a chavrusa with Rav Soloveitchik every morning with his writings that no one had read besides him and me. Um, so that was quite, quite exciting, and so I'm happy to continue that work here. I did that work before I was working here, but now I'm continuing it here. Um, also, Ravarin Lichtenstein, Mori Varabi. Um, you know, I've been involved in putting out a couple of his books, starting with his uh, first book that appeared in English called By His Light, uh, which I adapted from speeches of his. Uh, and uh, recently, we've been putting out a series of books in Hebrew of his. Uh, some of the material has never been, before been published, some of it in Gemara, some of it in, in philosophy. I think that both of them have a lot to say. <laughs> to our generation, uh, and uh, you know, some of it is uh, some of it is you know hard to you know to get through. You have to give it your full attention, but it more than repays the effort. What, what did you mean on the Rav's on, on Rav Soloveitchik's uh, project that you and him were the only ones who would have read those manuscripts? What does that mean? Wouldn't others have over the years been interested in and in fact have explored those manuscripts? Well, his 
I don't want to get into a whole discussion about that, but he, he left behind hundreds of manuscripts, and they were just in his study. That literally people had not seen. That Yeah, just, just he had wow. seen. And then after he passed away, his family put together a foundation to, to you know, do something with these, sure. to, to archive them, to get them typed up, and then... Uh, you know, with uh, some some colleagues like uh, Professor David Chatz and Dr. Joel Walwelski, uh, we turned them into books in, in English, in Hebrew, and even some in Yiddish. Um, the partnerships that Koren has, and this is one of the things that we knew would become a theme today, the OU, Yeshiva University, Haaretzion, City of David, or Torah Stone, not all of them would be considered, um, you know, not you don't always find all these partners in the same sentence, let's put it that way, but Koren somehow has established bridges and relationships with all of them, and each one bringing, I guess, a unique perspective to the world of publishing. Would that be a good way of putting it? Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that, look, we are, as you can tell from speaking to every single person here, it's not just a business. It's not like, you know, we could be putting out shoes, we could be putting out, you know, or books, but it's all the same. It's just a business. No, this is very, uh, people have, I I think that I regard it personally as as an educational and religious uh, calling. Uh, and we're trying to really affect the Jewish world. And we're actually much more in touch with the spectrum of the Jewish world than each of the individual organizations. Right. You know, each one is focused on its particular constituency. We're trying to see the big picture and to bring it all together. Uh, not only that, but we work with a lot of educational institutions. Now, their focus obviously is on, you know, they've got to educate their students. They're not publishers. But we need, we want to get their message out to a broader public. And we have our people, who some of whom you've met, Alex, you'll meet some more later, they're out there, you know, in the field, meeting with rabbis, with teachers, going around the world, speaking to the bookstore owners. And so so we're trying to see, you know, how can we bring people together? What do people need? We want to provide them with really substantive, deep, broad, you know, uh, vision of Judaism. And, pl- I'm sorry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we sit in the editorial board meetings, we try not to say, you know, what would what's my personal taste? What's right. my personal take? You know, you have to take a step back. and What does the Jewish world need? What does the Jewish world need? And you can learn from the people you meet out in the field. I even learn a lot from speaking to my children. You know, they're a different generation. Right. They have different tastes. They have different interests. And, you know, they're old enough now that they can actually read the kinds of books that we put out. And, uh, and I learn from them what their generation wants and needs. Uh, and what we're trying to do is to provide stuff that we're, we're proud to put out. All right. A pleasure meeting you. And continued success. It's amazing what you're doing here. Rabbi Ruvain Ziegler, editorial director of Koren, director of trade books. Hadaraba, thank you so much for joining me here today. Much appreciated. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Round the world on the web at AlchemSingle.com on the AlchemSingle Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app.
for safe and sound It was the first thing that came around He looked inside, see what would be Only then came you and me I'll pine shot a cut my tire, cut my tire, the you know I'll pine shot a cut my tire, cut my tire, the you know In the AM, Monday morning, our journey to uh, Aretz has begun. NSN is on the road this week in Israel, sponsored by Aaron's Casino Farms. Make sure to take Aaron's with you uh, this Pesach when you hit the road. For all your Pesach needs, Aaron's Casino Farms is there for you. Check it out and enjoy. And check out their amazing shopping experience in Queens before Purim and Pesach. You'll be glad. You did. We're here at Curran today, and uh, Sherry Mandel is with us, award-winning author of The Blessing of a Broken Heart, and recently the book entitled The Road to Resilience, which was released by the Toby Press, a division of Curran Publishers. Sherry Mandel and her family made headlines back in 2001 when her son Kobe and his best friend Yosef were murdered by terrorists in a cave. They were 13 years old. She and her husband Seth subsequently established the Kobe Mandel Foundation, which runs Camp Kobe for bereaved children and families, and wrote her award-winning spiritual memoir, the Blessing of a Broken Heart, knowing that time is the great healer. Sherry released her sequel, The Road to Resilience, from Chaos to Celebration, a Toby Press release. Uh, welcome to JMAM. It, it's a 
I'm not hearing it, I'm sorry. It's a pleasure to reunite with you here in Jerusalem. And um, and congratulations on the brand new book. Uh, it's funny, I was thinking back as I was reading this book about our conversation we had many, many years ago when your first book was released. And um, I'll never forget you portraying the day of Kobe's funeral and what you as a mother were going through that day. Obviously, as one might suspect, the tremendous grief and and torment that you were going through. And at the same time, you told us a story. I think you know what I'm about to say. You told us a story that on the way to the funeral, which was very well covered by the press and very well attended and very crowded and it really what they'd say I guess a balagan, right? A lot of people. And you are and one of your kids is saying he's hungry and he needs something to eat. And you have to figure out how to run and get a bag of potato chips or something for him to eat. And that was sort of like a balance where you explained to us at that time in this terrible throes of grief, you're figuring out how to maintain some type of normalcy. And that is that's somewhat of a, of a symbol of the aftermath of an episode like that, right? Well, I think also Gavi was six years old then. We may have to, we're going to have to switch. I'm sorry. <coughs> I apologize. Sorry about that. Gavi, the son that you're referring to who asked yeah. you for that snack, right? He was six years old right. then. On the day of and his brother's funeral. It was him who was saying, Mommy, Ima, you still have a family and pay attention to us. So it was really his childlike brilliance that from the beginning called out to us that life is very strong and in fact I went to a shiva for um, Uri Ansbacher mm-hmm. a few weeks ago because she lives in Tekoa the family right. and I walked in and somebody was speaking they were giving a long speech and the mother saw me and she knows me and she just started crying and before I had walked in, I thought, what am I going to say? And the only thing that came to me that I would say was, I was just going to say, you know, life wins. Life wins. But I didn't say anything. And I really didn't need to say anything because she, she saw that I was alive. What's interesting is everything you describe in this book, the new book is called The Road to Resilience, From Chaos to Celebration, Everything you describe in this book, you, you really experience from the beginning of this whole process. In other words, some might think that this, I'm holding up the book as I speak to you, that this started a year later, two years later, five years later. All of this really started the day of the funeral with that revelation, with that, with that you know, discovery that, there's, that there needs to be this balance going forward, right? Well, I think that it's Hashem who sends you the balance because, and other people, other people, they become messengers of God because when you have a tragedy, it's very hard to see God. But all these people come into your life, like the community, and they offer you love and kindness. And they give so much to you that it's like they're messengers of God. And they allow you to continue. But in terms of process, from chaos to celebration. Mm-hmm. And interesting, not, you used the word celebration, but we could talk about that later. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm not celebrating <laughs> right, my understood. son's murder. Understood. It's that there is the ability for a joy right. that's a different joy. Because when you know what suffering is, and we see it at camp, the kids, it's the happiest camp in the world because the kids are so thrilled to let go of that burden of grief. Right. And it's not a continuum. It's not like I left chaos behind. There's lots of like landmines. Mm-hmm. 
So, for example, last week I went to get my Tudatsahut, my identity card, and on that, that card you have a sefach, an addendum, I guess it's called, of your children. And the clerk looked at me and she said, do you want me to include all the names of your children? Because it said, Kobi zichron lebracha. And I was like, yes. But that's an example where all of a sudden I'm, I'm so innocent and I'm plunged into this chaos because she's really being insensitive, I thought. And this is 18 years later. Yeah, it never ends. It never ends. What I found most interesting in this new book is your description of how the landscape changes after every major change in life. You're, you're, you're sort of warning people. I mean, this is, and I've lost close relatives. And ironically, my father's yard site's tonight, and we're speaking. And, every, and I said this every time when my parents passed away, my brother passed away. I said, what's interesting is that every time the landscape changes, the reality becomes completely different. And if you think that it's not going to be that way, you're fooling yourself. And the beginning of this book, you make that point in such a strong fashion. Obviously, in your case, it was so stark. But really, in every case of grief, even the more common ones, excuse the, the way I portray it like that, has this, you know, it's a new world. It's a, it's, a, it's a completely new reality out there. Yeah, it's not like you become resilient. Resilience is a lifelong process. And also, I define re- resilience as not going back to who you were. It's becoming bigger. It's becoming greater. So I don't think you go all the way back to <clears throat> who you were. Because I was talking to my daughter this morning. It's like the clee. You're not enough to contain sometimes what happens to you. And that's why the community has to be that clee. The community has to be that container that can help you bear some of some some of the awful pain we go through. Does in it life. include the worldwide community? Because in your case, yeah, in your case, sure. it was global. The reaction for sure, and also in America and in in the five towns in Englewood, and so many people reached out to us and are still on our board and are still the ones who give us the ability to run Camp Kobe and the Kobe Mandel Foundation. But it's also an enlargement. Anytime you're enlarged by something that would make you smaller then it, it creates resilience. That's, that's my definition. But it's also the definition of the Jewish people because the community that the Jewish people create, it's predicated on kindness. There's this commandment about kindness that the community has a responsibility to take care of the individual. And when the individual experiences that kindness, then they're able to create more kindness. So I think it's really like the secret key of the Jewish people. Speaking with Sherry Mandel, the book is The Road to Resilience. Back then, we spoke about how people forget for a moment, not to at all minimize it, the Kobe Mandel Foundation and the worldwide reaction, which is amazing. But you were talking with us then about the people who were doing laundry for you, the people who were cooking meals for you, the people who were driving your kids to school, that those were the people who really came through with... with with the chesed that you're describing that really helped you get out of that, you know, or start to get out of this, you know, terrible grief. If not for them, can someone remain in, 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 that, in that state of grief? If not for them, would it be? Oh, yeah. People, first of all, some people can't accept the help. It's there, but they refuse it. And then there's some people who are really isolated. And it really, we see that grief can destroy people and it can destroy families and it can destroy generations. 
that's why like next week we have a, a retreat for 25 widows. We run Camp Kobe for 400 kids because we create a community where people understand each other and also they understand that they're not alone because that's also what people suffer from is this feeling that nobody can understand me. Nobody can relate to it. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows the pain I live with. But if you relate to other, if you let like other people into your life and then you form a bigger community, then there's a kind of, I wouldn't say transcendence because you never transcend it, but there's a transformation. You become a different person. So when you're in Tekoa two weeks ago at the Shiva call that you're describing, you're, you're somewhat saying to yourself, I have to go because nobody there's going to know can relate to that person. I at least can relate to the, to the family that I, I, I at least... Well, a lot of people went. A lot of terrorists. Who unfortunately had. Yeah, there were, uh, we were not the only family right. there and we're not the only family in Tekoa who's had terrible tragedy. But I remembered for our Shiva, there was a bereaved mother who came and she looked great. She looked alive, and it wasn't what she said. I saw, wow, this woman is still alive. You know, and that was and that was very. That comforting. was the most important thing to me. Like that, she you was, saw someone who survived this. She was evidence. It didn't matter what anybody said to me. I said, I'm not going to die from this, even though I wanted to. And you have heard, I'm sure, of cases where families break up, couples break up because of. And whether it's terrorism, whether it's accidental deaths, whatever it is, again, when that reality changes or that landscape changes, many people have difficulty dealing with it. Right. So that's why in the foundation, that's where we try to step in and offer support because it's too much for a family to bear. That's what I think people don't understand, that the pain is just literally could kill you. So how can, how can you and your husband and your children carry that? You need other people to help hold it. And if someone walked in right now in, in some type of similar situation and said to you, there's no way I could survive, there's no way I can make it, what would you say to them? I would say you, you will survive it, but you have a choice of how you're going to survive it. And in order to survive, the first step is to receive from other people. Just allow yourself to receive because maybe your friends there are people who might say stupid things sorry sorry about that yeah (laughs) there are people maybe who might not be there to support you but i can promise you hashem is going to send you angels you probably heard a lot of stupid things (laughs) you could write a book about those right we love the stupid things really i say stupid things everybody (laughs) says it shows you that people are human huh it's impossible not to in our last minute here this is what you do in the book and I hope, I don't know if you're ever in the United States, but I'd love to do this at length. I am. I'd love to do this at length one day. But you start with chaos, and these are all C's, I guess, for a reason. Right? Kobe? I, I or like not C. necessarily Kobe. No. Oh, Kobe was a K. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be good, no? It's just a nice letter. Chaos, community, choice. This is all stages, right? Chaos, community, yeah. you describe community. Right. Choice, choice, you just said. Yeah. You, you get to choose how you want to survive this. Right. You can survive it in a very difficult fashion or not. Creativity. Yeah. And I, I read the creativity chapter. I was a little confused about it. You want people to, that if they infuse more creativity and projects in their life, it may help them get through the process? Is that it? It's not just a project. It's that God gives everybody some talent that they, they, they need to express in the world. So, And if they use that to, in fact, express, it will help this, this it journey. It helps the energy because pain is power. And if the pain gets stuck in you, 
then it can make you sick. But if you can express it, then you can move on to do greater things. And it could be writing a book, or it can just be making lemon pie. It's that you're using that energy to create. Commemoration. And yeah. that, And that, I assume, means for the person who passed away, right? Yeah, but uh, commemoration in Hebrew is hansecha, which is netzach, which is eternity. Right. So you're bringing some of their soul into your life and into the world. And it, it can be something that they loved or valued. And it's something, I think of it almost as a sod, something that needs to be born from this tragedy. And sometimes in the commemoration, you find it if it's a very meaningful and deep commemoration, like Camp Kobe. Right. Because Kobe was a kid and he loved to have fun. And then uh, we always think of him in the baseball cap, right? That's the yeah. picture that went around the world. And then consecration and celebration. Because again... Even though no one's ignoring the grief of the past or of the present, still there's an ability to celebrate and to incorporate some some real lively. How do we put it? Some some real life into one's life, right? Even during the shiva, we were laughing. There were like such hysterical. Oh, I know things. what that's like, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> you have to laugh, <laughs> right? That's true. And also, you understand the value of life. You understand how important each moment is, and you see the world in a more divine way because you see really that life is a miracle because it can be taken god forbid does that period of time right before log bomber it's hell it uh, is every year oh yeah i every year i think what's the matter with me I, I forget like i feel like i have to be i should be on antidepressants i can't i can't bear this no it's like even physically, even if I didn't know what date it was, some, somehow physically and other people tell me this, you are just thrown into that time period again. And it's like, I mean, it's not as bad, but it's still not fun. <laughs> I don't know how this is going to sound after this conversation, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. <laughs> a celebration. <laughs> it's been a real celebration speaking to you. And I hope we get a chance to do this again because I still have another, another hundred questions oh, to ask great. you. Okay. Sherry Mandel's brand new book is called The Road to Resilience from Chaos to Celebration, a Toby press release, which means the folks here at Cohen have been very helpful to you, I'm sure. They're my community. And they're great. They're amazing. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you. Uh, we're in Israel. We are uh, in the midst of our NSN On the Road in Israel week, and it all starts here at Cohen Publishers. We're here until 9 a.m. Eastern Time, live on this incredible Monday, meeting some great people. And uh, Aryeh Grossman is with us. Uh, Aryeh Grossman is uh, development manager, um, working closely with the publisher to oversee the long-term projects at Cohen Publishers. He looks at the overarching long-term vision and helps plan out projects accordingly. Arye Grossman, welcome to JM the AM. It's great to be here. Nachum. This Thank is one me. of the, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most difficult tasks one could possibly have because they're basically asking you to predict the future, right? Uh, yeah, fortunately. <laughs> or, or to have an influence on the future. That's the exciting bit, I think, to yeah. know that we're shaping the next five to ten years of the company. Um, And luckily, it's not all on me. Uh, Obviously, a lot of inspiration (laughs) is coming from Matthew and coming from other people in the team. Um, But it's exciting to be a part of that, yeah. In order to shape the future of the next five, ten years of a company like Koren, one does have to guess what the future of the Jewish people will be for the next five, ten years. Am I right about that or not? Uh. Yeah, I think there's... Or at least some type of general direction that the Jewish community is going in. Yeah, I think like one of the interesting things is, as Ruben said, Matthew said, 
there's a lot of discussions here that you wouldn't find in a typical office. Right. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the future of Am Yisrael. <laughs> and as Ruben said, you know, you, in, if you walked into a, a shoe company, you wouldn't have discussions about, you know, what's the future of Jewish people going to be? And we do spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, and in a way, trying to predict what they... Uh, what the Jewish people we, would be beneficial for the Jewish people. I think also there's an element of us trying to say, well, maybe this would be good, right. even if they don't realize yet that it will. Correct. The Jewish people don't realize what's good for them. We're going to show them what's good for them. It's going to enhance their lives the next project we come out with, right? Yeah, with a, with a, with a little bit of anava, but yeah. <laughs> right. I understand that. The humility is always there. Exactly. That I can. Yeah. Um, how long have you been with the company? For just over four years. So if you go back four years ago in this capacity, could you give us some of the things that you know have developed since then that you remember when they were very at the very first time they were on the you know they were on the drawing board, so to speak? Um, so when I first started the company, for example, um, we were looking at the educational sidur and the Magnum educational mm. sidur series, and we just not realizing what kind of impact this would have. Exactly, huh? we just come out with the first two, the children's and the I need to fill You should know how. Our office reacted when we first got these. I mean, it was like a revolution in, in the world of Cedar yeah, sure. I'm yeah. holding them right now, a whole collection of, of different Magerman uh, edition Cedar because you've gone ahead and not only um, made a youth Cedar, you've made Cedar for different stages of exactly. youth. Yeah. Why is that important? Why is a, a sitter for a young person not the same as one you know who's a little older? So, a great question. So, I mean, it's something for me before. I made Aliyah, I was living in London, I was teaching in a high school there. Um, and there, for sure, from an educational perspective, they're always talking about, you've got to make sure your classes are aimed, age-appropriate, it's got to be right, it's got to, there's got to be development in their learning. Right. And for Tefillah, all the more so, it doesn't, we always say, it doesn't make sense, you never give the Havdil an algebra textbook to a first grader and say, you know, keep reading and over the next 10 years you'll get it. <laughs> Even more so, Tefillah, which is something which is meant to be personal, and uh, it's got to make sure that it's appropriate so that they can connect to it in a personal way. All right, so that was, if you look at the last four years, that was one major project. For sure. Um, and also, I mean, an example of the Talmuds, you know, right. on the... You know, the first couple of volumes, I think, around, you know, Yuvama Volume 1, maybe, uh, which is Volume 14, and now we're almost coming towards Volume 39. So that's something that's been, uh, you know, developed a lot over the last few years. Um, and I think also one of the things to talk about is the, the Tanakh project that is right. more like the next stage of what we're doing. That was something that we were already thinking about, but now we're actually getting closer to it happening. So Meaning what? The one, the way one navigates a Tanakh is going to be easier or better because of the new current Tanakh? Like, what was the what was the goal? So the idea was that the the origins of the company all come from right. the Tanakh. Eliyahu Koran's first publication right. was to the Tanakh. Um, as Matthew mentioned, the Talmud wasn't something that we were necessarily planning on doing, but thank God, you know, we did and it came <laughs> along. Um, and now, In a relatively short period of time, yeah, when you think incredible. about it. Yeah, it's um, and now thinking about the next stage, so we're almost looking backwards and saying, well, what is really the heart of the company? And that's Tanakh. So looking at essentially presenting Tanakh to the Jewish people in a number of different ways so that everyone can find their way of connecting to Tanakh. All right. And that means what differences or what you know, innovations will so be So we're looking at, um, sort of as the centerpiece, um, Matthew briefly mentioned our Magaman edition, New Koran Tanakh, right. which will be a whole new English translation um, written with the Chumash section by Rabbi Sachs and a whole other team of translators working on the translation. Um, and then following that, a couple of years uh, down the line, Rabbi Sachs' Chumash with his translation and commentary. And then just sort of around that, we have a whole 
almost web of different Tanakh projects, one of which I've actually brought. Yeah, what do you have here? Let's see. Sneak preview, uh, <laughs> is this for, for, uh, for the schools or is this for the home? This is for the Jewish people. <laughs> um, so this is what we're calling the Tanakh of the land of Israel. And the idea behind it is to take the text of the Tanakh, again, it will be the all-new Koran translation of Tanakh, and put it into the context of, of the reality of the world that the Tanakh was set in. And we always say, it's, when you understand almost like what the Jewish people at the time were seeing in the world around them, so much more of the Tanakh makes sense. And you have to understand it in its context, in particular in the context of the land of Israel, to really understand the Tanakh. And as an educational tool, both for the home and school, so a lot of pictures are included, exactly, yeah. charts, uh, short history when necessary to yeah. give some background to those specific episodes, etc. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and obviously a lot of maps, because the Jewish people have gone to a lot exactly. of places over the years. And Pretty amazing. And, and something also important about this is that we're working with, it's not something we're sort of saying we're Corin and this is what we're doing, but we're working with a whole host of different institutions who are helping us provide the material, whether that's Hebrew University or Machon Amigdash or Ir David, a um, number of different universities here in Israel, Rav Rimon's Merkaz Halach of Salamot. Um, we haven't mentioned his name today. Another important name in the whole sure. roster of, of authors. In yeah. terms of our of Ramon, Halacha, right? yeah. sure. um, to give that sort of big overall picture and just to bring all those institutions together on a, pro on a project like this is, again, um, I don't think it's underestimate to say it's a revolutionary thing to bring all those organizations together. The preview so. copy for Schmoes that you have in front of you, when yeah. will this be available to the public? So the first volume will be ready later this year, please go. 2019, and will yeah. it be Schmoes or will it be... It will be Schmoes, yeah. That's where it all starts. Yeah. Um, well, not really, but you know what I mean. <laughs> That's where this project will start. Yeah. R.E.A. Grossman is with us talking about the future of uh, Corin and uh, some of the different things that are going on here. Um, what else can you tell us is, uh, you know, being... Uh, Considered here at Koran. Um, so again, it's a, around the theme of Tanakh. You mentioned the educational sidurim. Um, I can't right. say too much at the moment, but we're definitely looking in terms of how to take a similar model and how maybe we could apply that to Chumash and Tanakh as well. Um, I think that definitely if schools, certainly in England, certainly in North America, what we're seeing are doing a lot of schools, especially in the modern Orthodox world, are doing great work in terms of Tanakh. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's always more that can be done in the same way we did with the Sidurim, making Tanakh relevant and personal to kids to say, when they read a, you know, a passage of Tanakh, to actually say, this is relevant to me in 2019. Um, and this is how I can connect to it in a personal way. That's one of the things we're thinking about at the moment. And by the way, we should mention that in the Magerman series, when it comes to Sidurim, because again, you're making the comparison, yeah. Uh, not only are there different age groups in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the, what do we call these? I guess the smaller Sidurim or the children's Sidurim. Yeah. But in addition to that, there's an NCSY Sidur. Yeah, absolutely. That's come out, which is, which has tr tremendous. I mean, I, I find that, uh, uh, that the teens love it, that the, yeah. that it's really made for teenagers. The Koran Youth Sidur, which is bigger than the children's Sidur and obviously meant for somebody in the older grades yeah. in elementary school. So there's, yeah. I mean, the, the the number I don't know what the total number is. What is it, like seven eight Sidurim in this series something like that. So I mean in terms of the levels we have four levels, but then obviously within those levels we have different versions. So for the right. children's and the youth, so we have the two Nusachim, Ashkenaz and Sfaradim. Are these as big a hit as we think they are? As con uh, from our perspective, we think this is a big hit. From your perspective, is it? From our perspective, we're seeing that these Sidurim are being used in every English speaking Jewish community in the world. There you go. Um, so I think that is something that we can be proud of and continue to do. Yeah. And consider a success. Yeah. Arye Grossman, Development Manager, Future of Koren is the topic. Thank you so much My for pleasure. joining me here My today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's really a, a pleasure. Chut. I appreciate that. JM and the AM, we're on the road and we're in Israel.
Um, everybody out there, you have an opportunity to uh, to see all of this online. There's so many amazing uh, um, publications that are coming from Corin and all the different imprints, and you have an opportunity to see it all. Go to CorinPub.com, CorinPub.com, and check out everything that Corin has to offer. You'll be glad you did. They have an amazing array of so many different things and so many different topics and everything you can imagine um, when it comes to a Jewish life. Uh, Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, and here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. It says in Shmos, Usually, in order for a people to become a nation, they have to dwell in the same land where they were born and raised. If they become uprooted from their land and have to move elsewhere, they can't always maintain their own nationality. B'nai Yisrael, however, became a nation before they reached Eretz Yisrael. We have always been a nation, no matter which land we have gone to. The Yalkut Chodesh explains that the same language is employed with reference to Eretz Yisrael, the Holy Land, as the expression that is used for the Torah. Torah Tzivolonu Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu commanded us the Torah, Moshe, it is an inheritance, Kehilas Yaakov, for the Kehila of Yaakov. Because the inheritance of Eretz Yisrael is not something that a person has an everlasting schustu, we have this privilege if we live a life according to Torah. Our claim to Eretz Yisrael depends on Klal Yisrael guarding our nationality through Shmir Samitzvus in Torah learning. The Michtam Elio says, The fact that we have a Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael today is a nace, it's a miracle. It is among the great chasodim that Hashem has bestowed upon His nation. We are able to come from one extreme, the point of Chorben Europa, the Holocaust, to the other extreme, and reestablish the yeshivas in the great centers of Yiddishkeit in Eretz Yisrael. We have to remember, though, there is an Eretz Yisrael de la Mata and an Eretz Yisrael Shalmaila, one that is below and one that is above. They both must exist simultaneously. We say in davening, Dovar Tziva Le'elef Dor. It has been thousands of years since we have gone into Golos, into the exile. How does the Ava, the great love, remain in our heart? The Michtam explains, it's because of the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. That Kedusha continues to draw us near, no matter how long the bitter Golos is. This is the Yerusha, the inheritance that we have from Avraham Avinu. He was Moshe Nefesh. He self-sacrificed for the Nisayan, the challenge of Lech Lecha. The Talmidim of the Belzer Rebbe, Reb Shalom of Belz, had drawn water for the Mayim Shalono, the special water which is used to bake matzahs. When they finished their task, they were leaving the water overnight to use the next day. They wished the Rebbe, L'shana haba b'Yerushalayim, next year in Yerushalayim. The Rebbe asked, why next year? We can take this water that we drew today and we can bake matzos in Yerushalayim and eat them in the presence of Mashiach tomorrow. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you Good morning evening. physics. We're going to be continuing. JM in the AM, I thanks Rabbi Goldwasser. I also want to thank those who are commenting on the app, a whole bunch of people. Thank you to uh, Simon who's enjoying the interviews here this morning, as are we. 
Uh, I want to thank our number 255 down in Atlanta starting the week right with JM and the AM. That's listener Daniel telling us that. Um, one listener says the different tufts that we were discussing earlier would probably be very helpful for Akdamus, for those Ashkenazim like myself who differentiate between a tuff and a suf. All right, we can pass that along to our friends at Koran. Uh, one of our listeners says, Welcome to Israel and to Yerushalayim. I echo Matthew's words, Aliyah. Aliyah, and make Israel your home base for NSN. Hear that, guys? Rabbi down in Atlanta, the beauty of Torah Shvalpez, it's always a big year for Shas. All right, that's true. Uh, and I want to thank all of our amazing listeners for commenting on our app this morning at JM in the AM. Well, Rabbi Jason Rappaport is here. He's managing editor of the Noe edition, Koran Talmud Bavli. I guess if anybody's going to get a Mazel Tov wish for the completion of the Noe edition Talmud Bavli, it's going to be him. Rabbi Jason Rappaport, welcome to JM in the AM. Thanks for having me. Will you accept our Mazel Tov wishes? Certainly on behalf of a <laughs> cast of hundreds. A lot of people involved, a huh? A lot of people. Um, you probably have met some great scholars through this process. Would that be accurate? Right, right, for sure. And prime among them, Ralph Steinsatz himself, of course. Yeah, that's for sure, to say the least. And he has a great team, and the and Koren obviously has a great team, and you put it all together, and here's what happens. Uh, you end up with an amazing brand-new Talmud Bavli. Um, we know that there are Talmud Bavlis available to the public for maybe hundreds of years, right? Including translations, and people would think they would realize that. What sets this one apart? What is different about this completed um, um, Talmud Bavli? Well, I'll start by telling a story. Because this already starts from the Hebrew Steinsaltz Talmud. In 1965, Steinsaltz published the first volume of the Hebrew Talmud, which they completed in 2010. And he had a very simple idea. He said, the Talmud is the book of the Jewish people. Everybody should be able to access this. Most people's uh, Aramaic is not fluent. So that this is obviously in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew context. He said, let me translate this into modern Hebrew that any semi-educated person can read and understand. What they do with it then is up to them. Let them learn. Let them come and learn. That's really the, the motto of the Steinsaltz organization. La meditami, teach my people. So that's been already a story in progress from 1965. And we can remind people that he, he did that at times under great criticism. There were critics who were not happy with the fact that he was translating into Hebrew at the time. Correct, right. correct. Uh, right, I mean, the, I, I guess some people are not comfortable with the idea that people should be able to, be able to just deal with the text themselves. Right. And they'll, you know, they'll think whatever they think about it. So that's very much his uh, empowering approach, which mm. is, I want to take you to water. What, the way you drink and what you drink is going to be up to you. But I want you to come and drink. In fact, in his kind of dry way, he once told me, I want to take away people's excuse for not learning. Wow. I could see him saying So, that. you know, you come, you learn, you deal with this text just like I'm dealing with it. I'm breaking my teeth. I want you to better break your teeth as well. You don't know Aramaic, so break your teeth in Hebrew. So when we translated it in English, we try to keep that basic approach. In other words, it's light, it's readable. It's as, well, as much, the translation is always an interpretation. Right. We try and keep it as transparent as possible so that the reader just looks at the text, gets straight into the content, gets engaged and starts thinking and questioning and struggling. Um, what about specific areas or specific um, uh, sections that you've developed and you have a current Talmud Bavli sitting right in front of you, uh, which is different from other ones? I mean, what have you used in terms of charts and photos, etc.? And Steinsaltz, by the way, if we go back to 1965, made an issue of that, that he would provide, you know, different educational aids when trying to pursue the Talmud. V very much so. If, if you don't mind, let me just take sure. a step back and literally start from the outside of the book. <laughs> um, you have one book, if you look this way, it, it's all in English. Right. 
If you turn this way, it's in Hebrew. Right. So in fact, this book is really designed for two, maybe three kinds of people, probably more, but at least let's start with that. And these are actual real people I know use the book in these different ways. So the obvious way, it's an English Talmud. Open it left to right. And you see, very user-friendly. First of all, beautiful cream paper. To me, I appreciate these kind of aesthetic things. Cream paper. Little user-friendly chunks right. with a nice Koran font, font, of course. Hebrew here, English here. And it's literally a chunk at a time. So it's not, it's not intimidating. You come in and say, yeah, I can, I can look at three lines of Hebrew. Or I can little, look, digest this little chunk here. Great. Ready for the next one? Let's move to the next chunk. So, of course, it's 42 volumes. That's a lot of chunks. <laughs> but each one at a time comes in and you just deal with what you're dealing with now and you're not phased by that. So that's an English reader. Of course, there are many things around the outside. We'll get to that in a second. But let's not forget, it's also a Hebrew book. So when you open it from right to left... The traditional see, Talmud page. Right, but with it with some twists, which some of it which you heard about before, um, vocal out, vowelized, or right. actually vocalized Easier to read Rashi. the Rashi and Tosas. So it's vocalized, vowels, right? right? And then the Tosfot is punctuated. Right. As you know, that makes a huge difference. You know, is it, is it a question? Is it an exclamation point? period, whatever it is, so it's much easier. And of course, the text itself is vocalized. The, the traditional Tamil text, mm -hmm. which looks like another Tamil text, but you come into it. So someone who's, let's say, on the cusp of, I couldn't do it without the vowels, but let me have a try with the vowels. So again, this is Rabbi Steinsaltz with his smile, inviting you and say, come, come and learn, come and learn. So anyone really can read this, certainly the, the Talmud and Rashi as well, if you know Rashi's script, but anyone can read it. So I have friends who start here, get stuck, and of course, on the English side here, it tells you which duff you're on, obviously. So they flip between the two. So that's three types of people. There's the English only, <laughs> the Hebrew only, and the... The, 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 the people. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so th this is very much true about the, the partnership between uh, Steinsaltz and Corin in general, is that there's a beautiful partnership here, symbiosis of form and content. This book is the content, of course, but it's also the form. It's the philosophy behind the content and the philosophy behind what it looks like and how it feels when you actually pick up the book and read it. That's just a perfect example for me of Steinsaltz and Corinne's symbiosis, of, of which there is a lot, as, you, as you're aware. So that, that's on a kind of more, on a broader level. But when you go into, zoom in a little bit on the specifics, um, there are, there's a lot of supplemental material around the basic commentary, um, which really brings the Talmud to life. And this is very much Rav Steinsos as well. And what would you call those? Discussions? Well, elaborations? The, what would you call those? So, I mean, the, in general, we call their the notes, but there are subsections within the notes. So when it just says notes, that's just a, something that picks up on something in the text in more detail. But we also have halacha. Mm -hmm. By the way, guys, this is the Talmud. But if you fast forward, here's some of the main halachic uh, summaries of, of, of what we're discussing. So that's very, a lot of people find that very useful. And you also have language personality, background notes. And this is also very much in the Steinsaltzian, if I could use that word. That you uh, need to know who you're talking about right. when you're analyzing their statement. Where are they from, what their lineage is, etc. Exactly. So you have the history, um, you have the culture, um, geography. It, this is also very much, don't forget it's a translation from the Hebrew, it's very much an Eretz Yisrael book. Right. Even though it's in English, I'll give you a great example of that. And I think uh, this is a lovely example of the way the realia itself can not just bring the text to life, which is also always, always a nice thing, but actually explaining what's going on. So I'll give you an example here. This is Psachim um, 19a, Yudtet Amal Aleph. So the Gemara makes a statement here. It says, um, with regard to all the vessels found in Jerusalem, if they were found on the path leading down to the ritual path, path down, mm -hmm. they are presumed ritually impure. So on the path down, they're impure. On the path up, they're pure. Now, it's black and white, but if you look at a picture of, you know, usual mikta that we're, that we're used to seeing, 
there's only one path. Just give me a second, I'll find it here. Have it in my notes. Yeah. Yeah, you obviously, if you just Google mikvah, or just if any mikvah you've seen, there's just stairs going down, same stairs going up. <laughs> right. Why on earth would it be tamay going down and not, to, like, did, like, we change the fourth time dimension here? So, actually, lo and behold, here's a picture here of an ancient ritual bath in Goshetzion, just 20 minutes south of here, showing very clearly. This is a picture, a, right? Yep. There's a path down and a path up. An so, entrance and an exit. Exactly. So if you're on the way down, where the... the, the, the it hasn't been purified. Exactly. And so, you know, if you don't know that's what's going on, it just, just seems like a very strange statement. But if you know what's going on, it makes perfect sense. And so I can't say we've done that with every single sentence in the Talmud. Right. But wherever we can, we just try to make it clear where it can actually be clear. Unbelievable. So you're dealing with, um, I mean, among the staff members, I mentioned earlier the scholars... But in addition to the scholars doing scholarly work, there are people who are doing translating work. Right. There are people who are doing the graphics work, right? As you just described, you want the right photo to show people, you know, what that mikvah was like years ago. And uh, I, I assume there, and and then uh, and then there are people who who have to, who who you'd like to make sure they lay out the work in a way that's appealing to the to the regular reader. Absolutely. You want it to be, Rav Steinzold said, come and learn, I'm going to make it easier for you, but you also know the value of something looking beautiful and, and being appealing to somebody to Absolutely. want to open it up. You, you, why not enjoy yourself while you're learning? Right. You, don't, you don't have to strain your eyes. And in order to do that, you need a good team of people who know how to do layout and, for sure. and for all sure. that. So you put all that team together and all of a sudden you have an entire Tom Bavlin. Right. Now, of course, I know we have a few minutes, but I just yeah. want to just sh a few shout outs because really without these people, this this oh. amazing book would not be possible. So the generosity of the Noe family, of course, right. obviously, and the incredible talent commitment of the, the Corin team from, you know, the, 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 the amazing collaboration with us on what is this book about? How should it look and why should it look like that? Really holding our hands and making, making, making the, the the content team people part of the decision of the layout as well, because sometimes those things are siloed. In in this case, very much as complete symbiosis. So that's amazing. Rav Meni in Israel, Rav uh -huh. uh, Steinzel's older son, who's really like the push behind. Guys, we're doing this, and we did it in ten years. So to produce the whole people tum, don't realize how fast that is. <laughs> yeah, I mean the Rehibim Tom, which is great, took more than forty years, right. and that makes sense. But ten years is kind of crazy in a good way. So that that was really many. Um, Rav Tzviyosh Weinreb, editor-in-chief, his amazing vision and just wisdom. There were so many times we had difficulty and he's like, let me think about it for a little bit. And he'd come back to us and discuss and listen to all the sides and say, okay, let, I think you should do it this way. In a very, very you know inclusive kind of way. So he, his, his knowledge and wisdom was incredibly useful. Um, Rav Josh Schreier, who really, without him, this book wouldn't be here. It's his vision and his, his basic insight that we should make this translation invisible. What do I mean by that? Often when you read a translation, even if it makes sense, you can, you can tell it's a translation. This is not trans doesn't read like a translation. It just reads like, there I am, like I said at the beginning. I, I'm brought right into the text. And that's really of Josh Shire's vision to think really carefully, what does a word actually mean? I'll give you one example. The word le'olam. What does le'olam mean? We always say forever. Okay. In the Tanakh, it often means forever. How do we translate the word le'olam in the Talmud? Actually, because that's what it means in the Talmud. Right, so, olam, for, yeah. right, so forget what you know from other places, what you think it should mean. What does it actually mean in the text right here? It means actually. Right. So we're going to use the word actually. I could give you other examples, but I mean, it's really Rav Josh Rai who said, let's think really carefully about what it's actually saying and don't just like hold on to conventions that we might have from elsewhere. Oh, this word is usually translated like this. Forget the word usually. We're not interested in the word usually. What does it really mean over here? That's the word we're going to use for the translation because we want to be clear, True to the Hebrew and transparent. 
I again wish you a Mazal Tov, and I thank you for joining me here today. Thank you so much. Rabbi Jason Rappaport is managing editor of the Noe Edition, Koren Talmud Bavli. Uh, This is the year that it has been completed and that it will be completely available to the public uh, as the last last, um, uh, editions are being made available, right? The last volumes are being made available uh, to to everybody um, who would like to have the complete Talmud. More coming up. You are listening to JM in the AM. We are in Israel. We are having an amazing visit with our friends at Koren Publishers. Check out korenpub.com, korenpub.com, and uh, see the array of work that is available uh, to the uh, Jewish public worldwide. It is simply remarkable. We're at Koren Publishers in Jerusalem, and this is JM in the AM.
JM in the AM as we continue from our friends at Corin Publishers in Jerusalem. I do remind you that we are on the road all week in the holy city of Jerusalem and the state of Israel. NSN on the road in Israel is sponsored by Aaron's Casino Farms. Make sure to take Aaron's Casino Farms on the road with you this Pesach for all your Pesach needs. Uh, today we're at Corin Publishers. Tomorrow we visit Azer Mitzion. We'll be in Petach Tikva tomorrow live with that with that uh, show. American Committee for Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem has invited us, us has invited us to Shari Tzedek Medical Center this coming Wednesday. Uh, you'll hear that show on Wednesday. And our Thursday JM the AM from the Inbal is going to be with our friends from the Jerusalem College of Technology and the Medical School for International Health at Ben Gurion University. Both institutions are going to be part of that amazing uh, Thursday coming up this week. So we are on the road in Israel all through the week. Again, sponsored by Aaron's Casino Farms. And uh, I thank all of you for participating with us and listening in to JM in the AM. Tani Bayer is here, art director for Cohen Publishers, a native of Teaneck, New Jersey, familiar with JM in the AM from a long, long time ago. <laughs> uh, made Aliyah as a teen and has lived in Israel for a long time and thank God is uh, also part of this amazing team at Cohen, the art director at Cohen Publishers. Tani, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nacham. Great to be here. We keep talking about the... The layout, the design, the artwork, the photos, the uh, you know the different graphics that are used, and we're wondering who some of these people are that could take credit for this. So it's nice to see you in this context. It's nice to take some credit, <laughs> but partial. The team must be vast and really talented. We have amazing people here. We have Israelis. We have Anglo's. It's important to target different cultures because we do publish Hebrew and English, and it's interesting that. The aesthetic in Israel is definitely different than that in the U.S., and you have to keep that in mind when you're So designing. if you're targeting an English-speaking audience, the design might be different than if you're targeting a definitely. hebrew Definitely. Definitely. It's something to keep in mind. I don't know if you notice what's out there in all the bookstores, but I take a look at what goes on here in Israel, what's going on in Europe. There's definitely a different aesthetic. You have to keep it in mind. Uh, is there any way you can give us a specific example? Because now I'm so curious. Oh. <laughs> what, what, what would be a good indication of of a project that was done a certain way? Even if you don't give us the details of what way it was done, but is there one you remember where you said, okay, this is you know an American audience or an English-speaking audience is going to react a certain way compared to an Israeli one? I'm trying to think of something offhand. Um, and you're speaking of individual pages or the entire no, design? The cover design. Cover design, specifically. That's, that's my focus, primarily. Is, you want to make that cover. cover appealing. I want the cover to grab somebody. And a cover to a Hebrew-speaking public could be much different than a cover for an English-speaking public. It's definitely, I mean, you know what how culturally things yeah, are. You know, and, and it definitely translates into, the, into how book covers are designed and thought about. And in Europe and in Israel, I think there's a quieter aesthetic. In America, there's a lot more shouting. They want it louder. Yes, I think you have to grab people's <laughs> attention on the shelf. There's so much out there. I so love it. I think that definitely plays in. I love it. All right, what do, you, what do we have in front of us here? Well, there's an amazing book coming out shortly before Pesach called Charosa. It was written by a food historian <laughs> named Susan Weingarten, and she goes into the history and the cultural influences of uh, Charoset, amazing. It has an insert of um, full-color pictures of all kinds of manuscripts that show how Charoset um, varied in the different cultures and, and is fascinating. Just when you thought that you couldn't write a book about Charoset, <laughs> Susan go. Weingarten has found a way to write a book about Charoset. Exactly. Um, what was interesting about this project, because that's what I'm focusing on, right. um, is one of our amazing designers here um, worked on the cover. And as you can see, well, 
as I'm showing is you. Is this the winner? This is the winner. There's the camera right there. This is the this is this is what we're going to see before Pesach right. in the, the United States. This is an advanced copy, right. but this is what it's going to look like. And we went through a bunch of different versions. Um, it's always a balance between what the author feels and how they react to the cover, how our marketing team feels. And we want it to look pretty, but we also want it to reflect what's going on inside the book. You don't want a book cover that doesn't... Um, reflect what's going on. Inside. Right. So when they say don't judge a book by a cover, by its cover, the reality is people do. They do, and <laughs> should they do because I wouldn't have a job otherwise. <laughs> and that's why that phrase exists because exactly. people do. Um, and and some of the other cover designs for this book are in this pile or not? Yes, I have a few. So these are the ones that got left in the cutting room floor. Yes, these exactly. will not be used. <laughs> Here I can show you some because examples. some. And again, I I feel terrible saying this, but some might suggest that some of these are more exciting than the one you're using. You know what? Um, it's so subjective what right. works, and a lot of times we balance between what the author feels about their book. And as you know, um, for every author, this is their baby. Right. They've been working, whether it's a lifetime or whatever it is, to they invest be in this book. With and it. we want to respect that. We want to make sure they're comfortable with the cover, that it works from a marketing perspective. But that's always a dance, and um, we always try to get to the best possible solution for everybody. Right. Um, you know what's interesting about it? There are a lot of current publications, and of course this moment I don't have any in front of me that fit this fit this description, but the scholarly works, let's say, take some of the Magid scholarly right. works, halachic works. Very often, it'll only be the author's name and a title on the, on the on the cover. Yet, if one pays careful attention to the colors that are used, and maybe even certain designs that are used that people don't even realize are on that cover, uh, I mean, this is a good example right here. A lot of thought um, goes into it, and sometimes we go for a simpler um, appearance for a reason. We don't want it to shout too much. We want it to be taken seriously and focus more on the content. But I want it to look pretty, and I want it to grab people's attention nonetheless. And um, and when and and when a cover is too loud or includes too many pictures or is too busy that automatically would give one an impression that may not be as scholarly or academic a work as one, you know. What do you think? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to process this. <laughs> yeah. I've looked at a million covers in my <laughs> life. I never thought about it until I met you. Right. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? Okay, going I, into the bookstore is going to be totally different. Exactly. You know, like now. I'm trying to think, what is the publisher trying to tell me through this cover? I think that's And when, in fact, it is a serious book, it's going gonna, it's gonna to give that impression. Almost subliminally. Right, exactly. Right. I don't think you're even aware sometimes that you're going to take something not more seriously, but you're going to assume that the content is more serious, whether it's the MST and the different um, halachic publications that we do versus something that's a little bit lighter right. and a little bit more fun. But you want it to be reflected in the cover. And even before you realize, why are you grabbing that one and not something else? Tani Bayer is art director at Cora, and in front of you is this new Haggadah that's actually going to be coming out very soon, right? We're going to be spending some time talking about it. This is the one that Jordan B. Gorfinkel uh, and what's the name? Erez Tzadok are in charge of. Now this, because it's a fun Haggadah, and would that be an appropriate <laughs> way of putting it? A fun Haggadah, I think, right? I think it has, it's very engaging and it's a lot of fun, but it also has a lot of serious content, which is what's amazing about it. So when you went ahead and, and started thinking about this cover, both fun and engaging were two major factors in it definitely but in this case Aris Sadok and Gorf as we like to refer to right. them as uh, weighed in heavily this was their baby and we wanted it to reflect everything that was going on inside you know from 
from the Hebrew text right. to the comics, everything. And actually makes sense. They, they being illustrators, they're they're going to have a big say in what's going exactly. on with the, with the main illustration, which is the cover, which wraps around to the back cover. Right. Then you have the story of beginnings, creation, Bracid by Jonathan Grossman. I am assuming that this is a scholarly work. Exactly. Okay. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. But nonetheless, you put some of the and I I, I I'm gonna I was gonna say traditional. Um, creation photos on the cover, but uh, it's probably a better word that I'm really looking for. But, but but pictures that are associated with creation you put on the cover. Exactly. I think that even though this is a serious work and a, even somewhat academic, it has to look pretty. I want someone to grab it. Right. I want them to want it on their shelf. And I want them to open it up and take a look what's going on even inside. Even if there's not one photo in there. Well, the, the words are the beauty here. Right. No, I'm not kind of criticizing. Right. I'm just saying. <laughs> That that's another evidence that it's really a scholarly work. People aren't including photos. And this is in it. actually part of a series that we have of um, Magid Tanakh companions, right. which is part of our other series of them, uh, MST. And then you have one here that uh, concentrates on the work of Rabbi Soloveitchik. And in order to show how scholarly it is, you show the serious scholar, right? That's okay. also a good method of showing a, he speaks for himself. How scholarly he work is. He speaks for himself. He, I mean, you have to put yeah, exactly. him on the cover. We combined it with with words. And his persona tells us, because when you see it, it basically tells us what the book, the the, the approach of the book. Exactly. And you'll notice that there is a nightingale on the back. Yeah. Because Soloveitchik means nightingale. Right. And so, because he was from, uh, he was a levy. Right. And they sang in the Beit HaMikdash. Correct. And so we put a nightingale on all his books. You think of everything here, huh? I like to try. (laughs) Tani Bayer, art director at Cohen Publishers. Thank you for spending this time with us. This was great. Thank you. Much appreciated. I learned a lot. I'll say that much. Uh, Are we going to another guest? We're going to Rabbi Jeremy Kagan, who is author of Intellect and the Exodus. An award-winning author, Rabbi Kagan presents us with keen and powerful insights into the nature of Amuna in the modern world. Uh, he shows us how the experience of the Exodus from Egypt was structured to teach us to engage reality in a manner that sensitizes the various facets of our character to see the creation, to see creation reflected in the world around us, to become conscious of God through our perception of of reality. Rabbi Jeremy Kagan, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. So you, basically... You read that well. I appreciate that. <laughs> basically, many people might argue that one must see creation of the world in their day-to-day, you know, average day, let's put it that way. You might argue that the exodus that created us as a Jewish nation needs to be emphasized every single day. Correct. Well, I think uh, the whole, when, you, when you study the Exodus, uh, what you find is that, in a certain sense, that was our opportunity to witness the creation. We obviously weren't around for the creation, uh, but the, that is certainly the basis of our Muna in the sense that we recognize that the world is a created place. When did we have an opportunity to recognize that there really is a power behind existence, that the power of creation? That was actually the Exodus. All right. And I guess it's... Uh... Even easier, as difficult as faith is, it's easier, though, for the generation that sees the miracles of God up close to have more of that faith, right? Well, I mean, I think uh, something that I've been writing about for a long time, I didn't actually grow up religious, uh, so I've been sort of wrestling with the uh, challenges of, uh, in a certain level, accepting a created world living in a, in, a, in a time when people are really trained not to look at the world that way. You know, how do you come to an appreciation 
of the world as a created place. And that's one of the things that's explored in this book. Around what age were you when this revelation hit you? I wouldn't exactly call it a revelation. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm slow in transitions. I mean, I'm a grandfather, but I still refer to myself as an uncle. I do these <laughs> things slowly. But uh, I, was, I was in college uh, as, when I sort of started that journey, and, uh, and it was a multi-year process. Is faith more difficult now for people than it was 10, 20 years ago? As unquestionably, unquestionably. And that's because... <laughs> Well, um, the truth is, I'm, it's not only in the last 20 years, I think we would say that it's become increasingly difficult uh, over the last two and a half thousand years. Once civilization moved its center from the Near East to the West, Greece and Rome, we were much more rational societies. Right. And as that rationality becomes increasingly part of the way we look at the world, uh, faith uh, and recognizing a creator becomes increasingly difficult. That has become, that, that process of uh, sort of distance from that idea has definitely intensified and uh, and it has become more rapid in the last uh, last uh, two three centuries that's for sure true and in the last couple of decades in to a, a remarkable extent but that's what i need to know about the last couple of decades what would be the difference between the last 20 years compared to the way many people thought 50 years ago what's changed is that uh, people accepted an intuitive morality up until mm. about 50 years ago. Good point. And uh, what's happened now is that, I mean, interestingly enough, and this is being written about quite a bit in, in the secular literature as well, uh, we become increasingly committed to the world as a very physical place. In fact, begin to accept uh, machines and computers as substitutes for human relationships as that process has intensified incredibly over the last 50 years. Uh, people begin to lose contact with the fact that there's something beyond just physical reality. Mm, very interesting. And that's only going to get, I don't know if the word is worse, but it's going to become more of a challenge as we continue forward in, in, in this century, correct? I, it's, it is. And I mean, the truth is, I don't really, I, I work, uh, I, I teach 18-year-olds. So I'm not really so conscious of how old I am. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but as certainly, uh, we, the, the, the degree to which the world has changed since I was a teenager, in terms of the way people look at the world, their expectations, their understanding of what's true and what's not true, the rapidity with which things have changed is just so startling. It's, uh, you know, you, you get dizzy. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Rabbi Jeremy Kagan is with us. He is the author of Intellect and the Exodus. It's a Magid Books release, which is, of course, an imprint of Koran Publishers, and that's where we are here uh, during the first day of our visit to uh, to Israel. Um, what would be the best way, especially based on your experience, to try to bring some of this faith um, to the youth of today? You mentioned you teach 18-year-olds. Is there a method, a strategy? Is there something that you need to keep in mind or that you need to convey to students to at least get them thinking, you know what? Maybe there is a, 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 you know, a spiritual being out there that I need to, in fact, have faith and put faith in. We're talking about students or we're talking about children? No, students. So, uh, I mean, one of the most important things that I try to give over to my students is what I would call a historical perspective, to really understand how it is that we look at the world today, but how that is not what we might call an objective vision, but it's really a consequence of a 
historical development that's been going on really for thousands of years. Uh, when you recognize that there is actually a very different way that you can look at the world, and there was a time when people did look at the world differently, then you begin to appreciate what you might call the relativity of the way that we look at the world. That at least it opens you to the possibility that you can look at things differently. I combine that with trying to sensitize people to a real awareness of the fact that what it is to be a human being, your own internal experience is really not a physical experience. There's something else there and you need to explain that. When that becomes a challenge, then you're opened up to a whole, a whole other area, a, a whole other ways of, of looking at things. Do you suspect that everybody has trouble with faith? Um, I think the people that don't aren't really thinking about it as deeply as they maybe should. Maybe in the sense that uh, we are all trained to look at the world where intuitively we accept it as a place which is really a mechanical physical reality. When we accept our faith as being something that, as something as easy and integrated into us, we're really ignoring the fact that we, we really engage the world as a natural place. If you're more aware of the fact that you really do think of the world as a purely natural place, at least when you're trying to figure out how to work in that world, then you realize that that sort of standard way of engaging the world is actually in some conflict with the idea that you have faith and that there's something underneath that that really holds up that whole natural structure. Wow. Um, the 10 plagues, why are they such an essential part to belief and faith? So, um, look, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Asher Otsay Sicha Me'ariz Misraim Mibes Avadim. It's in the Pasuk there that our Amuna emerges out of, uh, of leaving Egypt. Right. And that really has to do with a consciousness. We have, you know, we have, we have, we have Pesach is just around the corner now. The Haggadah is really an opportunity to engage those 10 plagues as a way of catapulting and, and, and strengthening my imuna. How are you supposed to do that? That's, a, that's a, a pretty significant part of the book in right. terms of understanding. And you actually split it into different categories. I split it into ca different categories, and we look at each one individually in terms right. of, it, I mean, I, I've always found that. You place, understand that God could not have done the exodus without the plagues. It would not have been beneficial to us for him to simply show up one day and release the Jewish people. Well, when you look at the actual fortune, the point that they make is we think of the plagues as the means by which the Jews got out of Egypt. Right. But in fact, they got out of Egypt in order to have the opportunity to experience those plagues. In I other words, I never thought of it that way. So that's 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 actually clear. The Rambam makes that absolutely right. clear, and the uh, and other sources do as well. Meaning the that miraculous experience uh, was there to really. Uh, you know, bring out the fact that there is something that goes beyond the natural physical world. But then the challenge is, what exactly are we supposed to see from this thing? I mean, they seem so bizarre and random. I was encouraged my my students to pick a favorite plague and go into it. Like the frogs, that's my favorite plague. I mean, like <laughs> that. What's more random for the you know for someone who has his fingers on all that's the controls <laughs> to decide to destroy Egypt through frogs? But even the, as, as strange as the, as the plagues are, if you look at the actual midrashim that go beyond them and really explain them, the details there become just increasingly strange. But when you remember that uh, when, in Medrash, when Chazal is speaking to us, they're, they're, not, just, they're not just adding color. Every, there's a conceptual picture there they're trying to convey through every one of those details. What are they telling us? That's a lot of what the book does to try and understand, you know, what are we really supposed to get out of these things? What's it like working with Magid? Magid's great. They've been they've been very supportive. Uh, you know, great uh, editors and uh, work with. I, one of my editors lives across almost across the street from me. That was a pleasure. So uh, it's been very very nice. A pleasure meeting you. And good luck with the book. Thank you very much. The intellect and the exodus. Authentic emuna for a complex age. And boy, are we in a complex age. Rabbi Jeremy Kagan, a Magid book release. Check it out, everybody. Coranpub.com. 
is a great resource to do that. NSN is on the road. We are, uh, thank you so much. NSN is on the road. We are being sponsored this week by Aaron's Casino Farms. Make sure to take Aaron's Casino Farms on the road with you this Pesach for all your Pesach needs. Today we're at Curran Publishers. Tomorrow we're going to be at Azer Mitzion here in Israel. Rabbi David Brofsky is here, author of Hilchos Avelut, Understanding the Laws of Mourning. I, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Please do not take offense at this opening question. <laughs> okay. You are obviously are familiar with the fact that there are many guides to mourning out there. Yes, there are many. There are many guides to mourning. <laughs> at what point does a potential author say, you know what? I think I could add something to this to this mourning industry that would be of value. So uh, I'll tell you, when I started writing the book or actually looking around at all the other books and seeing what, what there is, I found that there are, I guess you could say, two extremes. There was on one hand, they're all wonderful books, by the way. You have on the one hand maybe like the Rabbi Maurice Lamb book. Sure. A classic. A classic, exactly, which is really a wonderful book. Um, on the other hand, th- there are no footnotes, no sources, no right. development, no spectrum of opinions. It's a guidebook. It's a guide. Um, on the maybe the other extreme, you have the art scroll, which is a translation right. of the Pnei Baruch, which is a wealth of information that right. uh, maybe some of us are good at sifting through all the information, but you know it has its again pluses and minuses. So I felt there was room for something in the middle that shows the development and the spectrum of opinions and has a little Jewish thought and history, and you know I hope it'll be useful is for it those impo- who need it. Is it important for us? Um, to understand that the majority of Hilchot Avelut are really customs and not real halacha? Um, you know, a lot of people would ask me that as I was writing. I mean, isn't it all custom? Right. So I don't know whether I, I agree with that generality, but uh, generalization. But uh, certainly a lot of custom, which makes it more challenging, especially when you're writing and trying to present something which is useful to people. Um it creates a lot of difficulty, I guess, or challenge. But uh, there are a lot of things that are very source-based. A lot of the book is not just what we might call formal mourning. The Shiva is really one chapter. You right. know, Yaninot and Burial and Kaddish. And, um, you know, a lot of these things are not necessarily... Well, actually, that's actually very much custom-based. But um, we had this argument. it's a mixture. Yeah. We, we had a discussion last night, because tonight my family has Yard site. Oh, wow. And we were talking about, yeah, imagine the timing. No, huh? the, the Yekim say, Ad Biyas Agoel. That's where they <laughs> witch each other on the right. <laughs> on Yard sites. <laughs> Halavai, right? Halavai. <laughs> and, and one of the things I, I mentioned was this notion of lighting a Yard site candle. And, and I have heard so many different opinions about what you're supposed to and not supposed to do. First of all, I, I don't know what you could, if you could shed some light on this. Huh? Good candle. I don't reference. know. <laughs> we have been told that for a regular Yisker, you light one candle. And that on Yom Kippur, you light a candle for each person that you are memorializing. Really? Yeah. Now, that is not in your book. I looked last I know, night. I didn't uh, That is not in your book. <laughs> then I was told, if I am lighting a yardside candle in my brother's home, why does he have to light one? But th- this was his argument. Right, right, but right. I said, what do you mean? Each of us has to light individually. What would you say to that? Customs, I guess. I don't, <laughs> right? I don't know. <laughs> so these are some of the things that make us all believe that it's yes, really uh, a variety that. of customs, to say the least. Um, so what's been the reaction to the book so far? So, um, you know, I-, I mean, here in Israel, the books haven't reached Israel. <laughs> so I only fact? hear from over, you know, from oh, overseas. Um, you know, I think it's been well received. Um I get a lot of feedback from, first of all, from rabbis and rabbinical students and my students and Balbatim and, and I don't know, you know, we'll, I guess we'll see. I, I always tell people when you walk into a shiva house, there are certain books on the coffee table. Correct. And, um, <laughs> and I guess the test whether this book will be useful 
will be whether it'll also be in the coffee table right. in Shiva houses. Whether and it becomes a practical yeah, element. Yeah, uh, I will see. Um, the, uh, the, the laws of mourning are supposed to help somebody get through the process of grief, right? Would that be, that would be a... Uh, I, I think that that's definitely true. Okay. Give us an example. Tell us something in Jewish tradition, aside from sitting Shiva. Are there other things that you think, in fact, help through this whole process? I mean, there are people who, you know, daven for Yom the entire year sure. and, and things like that. Did First you? of all, I, I want to say, which made it sort of difficult for me, is that, thank God I've never been a mourner. So oh, that was also challenging, writing the book. Um I found it very sort of shocking when I looked at other religions. Again, not to, you know, but you look at the idea of, let's say, a wake, right. where like everyone's gathering around and then there's a burial and then back to work, right. which is very jarring. Meaning I find that, that our custom of, you know, taking a week and then gradually the shloshim and for a parent, you're chodesh. Um, you know, the feedback I get from people, because I guess I've spent the last couple of years talking to people about mourning. It's very morbid, but... And, um, and people... Most people find that they find the process, I guess, comforting and sort of proper psychologically. All right. It's definitely uh, the the um, the structure of it. Right. The structure of it makes it a you know something that the can... notion of the community is embracing you right. the entire time and family and yeah, I think so. It's funny. Sherry Mandel was here just in the last hour and mentioned this whole aspect of feeling the hug of the global community in her case. And I never thought of that in terms of the uh, the effectiveness that the shiva process and afterwards has on people. Because even, even the Suda Savra, the idea right. that you come home and other people are already right. feeding you. Um, Interesting. Um, I, I've asked this question of Rabbi Weinrib more than once because he has done so many works like Kinos. I said, what, right. is, it, what is it like? In the month of Adar, <laughs> immersing yourself in Kinnis. I will ask you, what's it like at really celebratory times of the year, immersing yourself in the topic uh, of Avelis? Listen, uh, you know, like uh, next to my bed at night, you know, I had a whole stack of, for years, this right. is going on for a couple of years already, and, and every Simcha I went to, you know, rabbis like to talk at Simchas, you probably see right. them. So it's all bouncing Avelis questions off of people. Um, and there are a lot of experts in it, uh, and, and, and thank God, yes, there are people with experience, yeah. although... You, you know, I, I really, I was careful to look for people I felt had experience, and especially since the book was in English, and I'm, you know, living in Israel, it was important for me to consult with people living in America. Right. I spent time with Roy Willig and others. He's the he's And, the you man. know, people who, who have that experience. Um, I, I don't know, I guess I, I tried not to let it get to me. <laughs> but, um, you know... I'm, I'm working now in bris Mila, which is a whole different, ah, you know, <laughs> more exciting. More and more smacho to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Talk about full circle, right? Yeah, <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. All right, David Brofsky is author of Hilchot Avelut, Understanding the Laws of Mourning. I am assuming it is available to the greater public, right? Definitely. It is out there. Definitely. Everyone should certainly get it. And as we it shouldn't uh, need it. It shouldn't need it, but as we described, it certainly has its place. In the plethora of uh, books about available out there. Thanks so much for joining me today. Okay. I really appreciate it. More coming up. You're listening to Jay. I just want to make sure I have the right one. Is this the right one? Is this the right one? I don't know. There's wires all over the place here. I don't know. Oh, here we go. Okay. Um, More coming up here at JM in the AM. I wanted to take this opportunity and wish a mazel to Tamar and Ross Rothenberg and all the honorees at the Yeshivat Noam dinner happening later this week. Go to their website and make sure to uh, give generously to Yeshivat Noam. Rabbi Hagler was with us last week, and we spoke about the uh, first 18 years of the school. Lots to be proud of, to say the least. Also, the Young Israel of Teaneck's dinner is this coming Sunday night. 
And I want to thank, or I want to wish a Mazda rather to uh, Janet and Lior Hode and the Hode family. They're being recognized, and, to, and we wish all the honorees a Mazal Tov for this coming uh, Sunday night for Young Israel of Teaneck. If you haven't yet put your uh, ad in their journal, make sure to do so by going to their website. Quarter after 8 o'clock, more coming up. You are listening to a very special Monday morning edition of JM the AM from Curran Publishers in Jerusalem as we continue on the Nachum Siegel Network. Say, Leo, who ain't 
J.M. in the A.M. That's from Baruch Levine. It's brand new. 20 minutes after the hour, J.M. in the A.M. We're on the road. NSN on the road is brought to you by Aaron's Casino Farms. We're today at, at Curran Publishers here in Jerusalem. I thank all of you for uh, tuning in. Feel free to comment on the NSN app, Nahum Segal Network app for Android and iPhone. Comment away. Well, we've, we've done a lot of things here today, but if there have been two main themes when it comes to the uh, uh, Curran uh, Publishing um, and publications. It's been, of course, the uh, Noe edition Talmud Bavli for obvious reasons. And we've really spent a lot of time on the Magerman Educational Sitter Series. Dr. Daniel Rose is with us. He is the series editor. He's a British-born educator with a background in informal and formal Jewish education in the UK, the US, and Israel. He's director of educational product, projects for Cohen Publishers. He was senior editor and core contributor to Cohen Magerman Educational Sidurum Series, which is now being used in Jewish day schools around the world. He's an independent educational consultant for various educational agencies, including Cohen and the office of Rabbi Sachs. And um, in addition to focusing on uh, the Magerman series, we'll also talk about his work on uh, Rabbi Sachs' covenant and conversation. Dr. Daniel Rose, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you so much. We're trying to understand the success of the Magerman Sidurim. When we first saw them, they were very appealing, and we had a feeling like... not I shouldn't say we had a feeling. We, we, we had a sigh of relief that these were finally available because we understood the value for our own children and students uh, when it comes to tefillah. But, uh, it, it, but you still don't know if it's going to be a big hit around the world. Sure enough, a couple of years later, it's a big hit around the world. Why? Well, I want to say I feel very blessed as an educator to have had this opportunity to see that success. These children were used from Australia, across North America, <laughs> in Europe, in London, to see the schools that I attended now use them. It's a tremendous, um, tremendous buzz that I get from that. I, I think the educational world were looking for, um, for innovation and creativity when it came to tefillah education. No, the only thing anyone, everyone agreed on was that none of us knew how to do tefillah education and achieve the goals that we had set for ourselves. The potential of tefillah education is tremendous but it's the most challenging area of any Jewish studies curriculum. And in fact, this series came about, its genesis was through schools turning to Corinth and saying, you've got to give us something because we don't have anything. When, when I, uh, I we, my family and I, we went on Shlichot to Atlanta. I know you were just recently sure, yeah. at Atlanta for the Super Bowl. So we spent two wonderful years there. When, when I got there and they handed my, my kids uh, who were in uh, first grade and third grade, they handed them a Shiloh Sidor. I said to the head of school, that's the same Sidor I learned to them from and he said that's the same Siddur he learned to them from and he's 20 years older than me that means nothing has changed in all that time it was time for a change but that's what's so remarkable about this whole thing with all the booklets and workbooks in Chumash and in Tanakh and in Talmud that have come out in the last 50 years it's amazing that nobody ever thought to take a Siddur and make a really good you know youthful educational series out of it it's it's just, now that it's been done, it's a shocker that it wasn't done earlier. A hundred percent. Look, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, for me, as I started thinking more and more about tefillah education, I divide our goals of tefillah education into two: tefillah literacy, and then tefillah. That's beor milim, I assume. Exactly, and, and then and then tefillah meaning making and connection, connection to Hashem, right. spiritual development, making an inspirational thing, making exactly. it inspiring. So schools were focusing much, much more on tefillah literacy. They wanted their their students to graduate with the skills of tefillah, and that's obviously tremendously right. important. But it was everything else was being lost. But if that's your only goal, then then a siddur with clear print with line numbers down down the side, that's all you need. Right. 
but we really try to come together and think creatively what can we give that can still be used for those goals but give the students and, and more importantly give the educators resources for more to connect students our, our children to the tefillah to the themes of the tefillah and ultimately to Hashem the sidurim that you helped create much different for the first grader than the fourth grader right I mean I assume pictures and uh, you know scenes that are depicted you know would be in the much younger editions as one gets older and graduates to the you know older grade editions what types of things are they experiencing with that Ab- absolutely so we really tried to think developmentally when we first started the the, the project we thought we knew we were going to have we identified four developmental stages and we tried to build sort of that were appropriate for each of those four but that still looked like they were part of a series and built on each uh, built on each other so the illust- uh, very talented illustrator that I remember at the beginning of the of, of the project you interviewed Renat Gilboa right. as well as us as well as myself she, she the illustrations in the children's siddur the first siddur they're a very similar style to the youth siddur the next one up but they are matured just like the content right. Is matured, and I remember her describing trying to get into the mind of a kid. What what would it be that hits them when they see that photo, when they see that illustration? Absolutely. And also, what's most important, uh, very important to really reflect on, is that those illustrations are not just to look beautiful. I think right. they're stunning, but they're really each one has is pregnant with uh, educational meaning. We, I sat with her. It was a most wonderful creative process to sit with her and to create a, um, a visual for the Siddur that would connect students to the, the text of the, of the tefillah. Um, and we did that with, you know, with, with layers of educational meaning. And as a bonus, it looks beautiful. Yeah. Um, when it came to the, to the middle school, high school age, so illustrations, um, I, know, I know you've looked at the Gorf uh, sure. Haggadah, that's fantastic. Those are illustrations that are uh, appropriate for that age, but we didn't want to go in that direction. We talked about a comic, perhaps a, some kind of comic approach. We decided not to. We decided instead to use photographs. Um, so it would still be visually attractive, um, and we would still have the opportunity for educational meaning, but it would be a photograph, which any adult could connect to as well. So that's we chose photographs for, for the Aviv and NCSY Sidorim. Uh, now, in order to accomplish both goals, Be'or Mi Lim, translation of the words, you know, as you described, was able to be done on that original level, but obviously it's enhanced now with this publication. But the other part is trying to inspire kids to want to be part of tefillah, to gain from tefillah, to understand the spiritual connection of tefillah. Is it possible for these books to do that? Can they instill a child with the help of the teacher with that inspiration to make tefillah something so special for them? So I, I have to tell you, and I walk into schools and, and I'm presented as some kind of expert on tefillah education, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and no one would voluntarily um, take on that title. I'm not. And these siddurim are not the answer. The answer is educators. Uh, this, uh, these siddurim are, are is a, an amazing resource that I don't think educators have had before. But, but it... It starts and ends with the educator and their creative uh, uh, talents it, within the classroom and within the tefillah education context. So I hope that they are just giving our, our educators the, the resources they need. You know, I, I many, many schools, you know, hundreds of schools around the world are, are buying these siddurim, right. but some of them are buying them like gym membership. We have them. We're good. We're done. But they're not actually going to the gym. They're not necessarily implementing them creatively. And that's what I'm involved in the process now. And I'm, I'm traveling to America to the Prisma Conference um, for Corinne and also for Rabbi Sachs. And I'm and I'm trying to, uh, uh, even to the schools that have already bought the Siddur, I'm trying to uh, encourage them to implement it in a creative way. Because the Siddur itself is not enough. 
The Siddur itself is beautiful and will give children something to look at during Tefillah. But if anything, if, if they're just left to their own devices, it'll be a distraction. It needs to be incorporated into a, a vision of Tefillah education. And you were involved in the NCSY Siddur as well, correct? Absolutely, yeah. And I, I bring it up because, I, again, I don't know if we're, like you said, you need some people helping along the way in order to inspire teenagers. But the way it's written, it really speaks to a teen. Like it's done, it, just like we, we, you mentioned the illustrations earlier, with the, I mentioned with the kid in mind. There's no question that in that NCSYC door, the commentary and the notes were done with the teenager in mind, which is, of course, half the battle. You know, with, hopefully that will lead to more inspiring tefillah. Also, we mentioned covenant and conversation. So remind me now. I know we see this on a weekly basis because it is in newsletter form, but is there an official book, a covenant and conversation? So... Margit uh, publishes uh, so far seven, five, five, four plus two. Rachel Schmott, Vayikra, and Bamidba are in book form already wow. now. And then two more volumes on top of that, which is one Dvatara from each Pasha, the leadership um, theme and ethics. Um, and then Rabbi Sachs is uh, continuing to uh, complete the Dvarim. What I've been working on is the family edition, which is really, I, again, I feel blessed as an educator to have had this opportunity for me to work for Rabbi Sachs is, uh, you know, perhaps second only if I would get a job at my football team or um, it really is. Uh, that's soccer for our audience. Well, all the, all the Falcons. I'm that's, a big Falcons that's fan true, as well. the Atlanta Falcons after all. Um, but really working for Rabbi Sachs is a very close second to either of those opportunities. <laughs> if Arsenal or the Falcons are listening, uh, um, where I'm basically taking his ideas, his, devoir, his weekly devoir of a common conversation, and I'm adapting it to a family setting specifically teenagers but perhaps middle school age as well um, with uh, reflection questions and a story um, a similar style to, to how I to what I right. use for the Siddurim but here it's giving access to Robert Sachs's ideas which are very simple ideas but he writes them so beautifully and in a complex nuanced way I've tried to simplify it for that for those developments. So you'll enhance groups. the Shabbat table, and Absolutely. you'll enhance Fridays in, uh, in elementary and high schools around the world. That's the plan. Tadarabha, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Dr. Daniel Rose, series editor for the Magerman Education Sidur Series. A pleasure to meet you. Thanks so and much. And wonderful to have you on the air. More coming up here at JM in the AM as we uh, continue on this uh, wonderful day one of our On the Road segment. Uh, Rabbi Avishai Magensi is with us. He is the head production manager for Koran Publishers. I am told that um, I am told that you have uh, some association with uh, St. Louis's uh, Jewish community. Am I right? Yeah. Um, Should I assume your father's David Magensa? Yes. Wow. You yeah. got you got to set best regards for me. Well, there. <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, for someone who's in Israel his whole life, you're pretty good. The pretty good American accent. And my parents were very strict about English at home. <laughs> really, smart parents. Uh, Rabbi Magensi is the head production manager here at Koran. He's formerly uh, the image curator and liaison to academic researchers involved in the Koran Talmud Bavli and liaison for customers' feedback on content. He's now responsible for the entire production line of all Koran products. Tell us, what does a head production manager do? Well, basically, I'll uh, get a project from, uh, you know, the very initial stages of, you know, coming up with uh, an idea, whether uh, it's internal or with uh, one of our partners, um, and take that project from the very beginning until we have uh, the book in hand, including the entire process uh, throughout. Uh, so, for example, you know, um, 
one of our uh, big partners is uh, Steinsalz. Sure. Um, so you know, taking uh, a book like uh, like the uh, Mishnah we're working on now, which is um, in the series of uh, we have in Hebrew the Tanakh Mevoar and uh, the Rambam. Um, so we will sit down together and discuss the project in terms of you know how it should be done in terms of content and design and work together with the entire team until we we have the the book in hand. You've seen publications uh, go from that initial meeting to completion, I would guess, in a short period of time, and you've seen it happen over a very long period of time. Right, for sure. Um, it I mean, you know sometimes we do receive things that are um, already somewhat processed. Uh, so sometimes uh, it's actually a shorter time. Uh, but generally, I feel that um, uh, specifically Koran books compare. You know, when when you compare them to uh, to Megid books, oftentimes uh, take much more time than uh, than people would assume. Uh, there's just so much that that goes into it. Uh, you know, you were talking about the the Talmud before. Mm-hmm. It, it's like an entire team uh, working together with different experts, uh, whether it's experts in their uh, specific fields in in terms of content or in terms of uh, of design. Um, and it's really um, it, it's an amazing process. It must be amazing. And and if people understood how many people are involved in the entire project. I assume mm. at some point you have to you know, make a running order of how this project's going to work, and you have so many different departments and people that are involved. How many departments would be involved? Is there such a thing as a typical book project that, that would have, I don't know, four, five, six, seven different categories of, of experts that would be needed along the way? Yeah, um, I think primarily uh, like translation would be a good mm. example. Um, so you'd have the initial translation, um, and from a, prof- a professional perspective, you would want to do a, um, uh, a translation editing, uh, meaning you're not just editing the translation for readability, rather you are comparing the translation uh, to the source material and right. making sure that everything actually uh, appears and that it's... Um, uh, and that it's uh, correct. That the nuance the author was looking for is conveyed to right. the translated audience. Right. And again, when we're, when we're translating uh, texts mm-hmm. like Tanakh, like Talmud, like Rambam, like you know uh, Mishnah, uh, you have to be extremely precise. You know, these are not the kind of. It's not just getting the the gist of it. Rather, you know, the the specific words really are uh, are significant and uh, meaningful. So, as I've mentioned a couple other times today, you've met. Some some really distinguished scholars along the way who really yeah. know what they're doing in this yeah. area. And and there are certain translators, I would guess, who are good for certain projects and maybe not for others. Would that be a good – I would assume people have different styles of translating the same way yeah. an academic would, academics would have different styles of presenting material, right? Right. I mean, it's always a combination of uh, style and knowledge and background. Uh, so, for example, like, you know, in the, in the Talmud um, – the the combination of tremendous talmidei chachamim and also uh, you know talmidot chachamim. Uh, we had uh, uh, many uh, female um, uh, scholars on our staff. Um, and so it's it's always a combination. You have to find the right balance between knowledge and you know the ability to write and and express oneself. Right. Um, but when you talk about scholars, uh, you know one of the people who comes to mind is uh, Professor Zohar Mar from uh, Bar Ilan. Right. Uh, I was personally in touch with him when we were working on the Talmud and received from him uh, images for um, a note on the Tolat Shani. 
uh, appears, for example, on Shkalim uh, Daf mm-hmm. uh, Yud. Um, and this is research that was done um, after the Hebrew Steinsaltz was already completed. So this is something that Rav Steinsaltz could not have technically, could not have incorporated into the Hebrew Talmud, um, whereas we were able to do that for the, for the English. Um, and I think that really kind of uh, expresses what we were trying to do in general. It's not just a translation, rather uh, really using the, the best tools that we have and um, what, what we have available to us uh, and convey that uh, uh, in English. Rabbi Avishai Magensi is with us. Were there certain sugyot, certain topics of the Talmud that became a real roadblock, that became a, a tremendous challenge and needed to be addressed by even additional scholars just to complete it the way you wanted to? Uh, that's interesting. Um, I can't think of uh, something which uh, which stumped us in terms of uh, of the content because again we really had such a variety of of top scholars. Right. Um, there were different issues that came up. So, for example, once um, you know we were debating on whether or not to use a specific note with uh, with an image on a specific type of a zara that's mentioned in uh, in the Talmud, and we involved. Uh, uh, Rabbi Steinsaltz himself and uh, Rabbi Weinreb, sure. uh, who was, you know, overseeing the entire uh, uh, project. Um, interestingly, they they both decided that it was okay to use uh, that note and image because that happens to be an Avodah Zara that is not uh, worshipped today. Um, so we did not have a problem with that. So we had we had various issues like that that came up. Uh, which again, you know, 20, 30 years ago, this would have never come up because no one had the tools uh, to, to even, you know, bring such a, such an image or, or gather such information. What kind of feedback do you get from uh, users of the Talmud at, at a general for people who uh, pay careful attention to your projects? Uh, uh, tremendous. Um, we have people, it, it's really interesting that we have people at all different levels uh, oh, using the Talmud. So, you know, we have a, a person um, who, uh, he's a horse race announcer. And, uh, and <laughs> I he, admire him already. <laughs> yeah, and, and he uses the Talmud. He, he told me that he uses it like in between races and, you know, when he's announcing. And on the other hand, we have people who, you know, this one person was writing to me. Um, he studies the Daf Yomi in advance with the Hebrew Steinsaltz and in Shear he's sitting with the English uh, Steinsaltz and comparing and he was actually giving us uh, tremendous feedback. Did he and have a lot of examples? So, so he, he gave us you know different examples and we actually changed some of our workflows um, due to his feedback which is another thing which I think is, is unique about the way uh, we did this project in general like, you know our view in terms of uh, communicating with our, our readers it's not kind of like you know we're sitting here um, and you know we're Take going to teach it. you Torah. It's like we're learning together with you. And if you have something intelligent and helpful to say, we will listen to that and possibly either you know incorporate that specific comment into our book, or maybe even change our entire uh, workflow uh, due to your your comments. All right, we have a minute to go, but I have to ask you: when it comes to all the different sidurim, mm-hmm. are the different languages that you're translating them into? Uh, does that become a a layout problem because it's because when you're doing Amharic, it's going to be much different than English. Right. So that's a, it's actually a very interesting uh, topic. Um, specifically with Amharic, uh, what we ended up doing was sitting down uh, with uh, with a scholar who sat down with our typesetter and went through it line by line. 
Um, wow. You know, for for other languages, uh, I think in a sense it's a little less difficult because there there are certain words that you you may be able to pick up, uh, but for a language like Amharic, we you know it's it's we're totally uh, in the dark. Um, but again, sitting down together with a scholar, so you know you can work together and, and produce uh, produce an, an amazing book. A pleasure meeting you. Pleasure. Hopefully next time we'll discuss more of these things. Okay, thank you very much. Rabbi Avishai Begensi's head production manager here at Koran Publishers. We are in Israel. We're in Jerusalem at Koran as we continue on this Monday morning broadcast. Plenty more coming up here if you keep it at JM in the AM. Eitan Freilach, as we continue in Jerusalem here at JM and the AM, where current publishers, or Dove Peretz Elkins is with us. He is a translator of the Holy Brothers, Rebbe Melech of Lezhensk and Rebzusha of Anapoli. 
uh, written by uh, Simcha Raz, uh, released by Menorah Books, a division of Koran Publishers. Rabbi Elkin served as a rabbi in Princeton, New Jersey, before making Aliyah. He's a prominent internationally known speaker and author and winner of the National Jewish Book Award. He's Rabbi Emeritus of the Jewish Center of Princeton and co-authored Chicken Soup for the Jewish Soul and has published hundreds of articles. I do remind our audience that Simcha Raz, who's the author that Rabbi Elkins translated, is also the author of the popular book, at Tzadik in Our Time, The Life of Rabbi Ari Levin, which I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. Rabbi Elkins, welcome to JM in the AM. Pleasure to be with you. I appreciate that. It's a pleasure <laughs> to have you here. I tried my hardest, even though sometimes it is difficult to get into the realm of Hasidut. I did try my hardest to appreciate all the amazing stories that you tell as a translator of this book. Um, oh, and we should mention, by the way, and we'll get to the details, that on Sunday, March 31st, there's going to be a whole event surrounding this book that's happening at the White Shul in Farakaway, New York. Uh, why did you undertake this project to translate the Holy Brothers? <clears throat> well, I've had a relationship with Simcha Raz for many years. Uh, I walked into a bookstore about 30 years ago and saw his Hebrew book, Pitgamei Hasidim, mm-hmm. uh, Hasidic Wisdom. And I said, this is a wonderful book. It has to be in English, available to English readers. So I uh, did some research and found out who was the publisher, who's the author, etc., etc. Found Rabbi Raz, made an appointment to see him. And I translated that book, and that was the first of six books that I've translated of his. And we have a, an ongoing, multi-decade, wonderful relationship. He's an amazing uh, editor, writer, Hebraist scholar, educator, and it's a, an honor to be his translator. Uh, the significance mm-hmm. of these two men, Reb Elimelech and Reb Zusha, when it comes to um, when it comes to e- either Hasidic giants or those who are followers of Hasidism, where do they fit in? They're the third generation. There was the Baal Shem Tov, there was the Magid of Mezrich, and these brothers were the next generation who followed, were students of the Magid of Mezrich, and uh, they're well known for their personalities and their amazing piety and and uh, everything about them. And are these stories that happened to them, or that they told, or that they experienced? Well, what are these stories? Combination of all of the above. Uh, things that happened about them, to them, for them, things that they did, things that they said. And are some of the stories hard to believe? Oh, not at all. If you know Hasidut, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this is... Uh, this is the typical... Uh, because there is a reminder quote in the book about <laughs> about uh, keeping in mind that not every Hasidic tale, you know, it's possible it may not be 100% true. Well, that is true of all Hasidism. That is true. Uh, one cannot uh, verify. Uh, we w- I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no eyewitnesses. <laughs> no eyewitnesses, right. Um, so what is it about these stories? What is it about these? They touch the soul, they inspire people. What is it that, that makes this book so unique? Yes, yes, and yes. That's what it is. They, huh? they do it all. These two brothers were amazing. Uh, their mother uh, was a, a woman who could not read Hebrew. And uh, she would hire a driver every Friday afternoon to drive her around so she could give tzedakah all over town <laughs> in Lizensk. And uh, she, she didn't let the driver see her face. 
So this is the mother who produced these two amazing brothers. Give me a story about them that would mean something to this audience. Well, Rabbi Zusha of Anipoli was dying, and he was crying. And they asked him, what's the matter? Why are you crying? He says, well, I'm not crying in case when I get to the upper realms, if they ask me, Rabzusha, why were you not like Abraham? Because I don't have the ability of Abraham. Rabzusha, why were you not like Moses? Because I don't have the ability of Moses. Then why are you crying? I'm crying because what they're going to ask me is, Zusha, why were you not like Zusha? Why, why were you not your very best self? Fill your own potential. Exactly. Um, is this for all ages? Can everybody appreciate this work? Absolutely. I What I say is for young people of all ages, <laughs> 10 to 100. And there's some, I mean, I read a lot of these stories, and uh, again, not to portray myself as a non believer, but some of them are just, I don't know, you know, I, it, it's hard to believe that. When approaching people that wanted to persecute Jews and speaking to them a certain way or presenting them in a certain situation, they ended up being, you know, the best thing to ever happen to those Jews. That story, right? A, a general, I just generalized it. Right. That story is in this book, right. and it doesn't always happen like that in Jewish history. But to the Hasidic masters, it seems to always happen. Well, that's piety. Very few of us reach that level of piety, but they were pious. They were the word Hasidim is pious people. They were very pious people. Right. And they were wonderful people. And uh, everybody who reads about them will be inspired to reach higher levels, higher and higher. What's it like for you to work with the people at Koran? Oh, they're great people. They're the best. This, take a look at this gorgeous book that they produced. It's amazing. They did a good job on this one, huh? Absolutely amazing. <laughs> I want to remind our audience that you can celebrate Rebelli Melech Milizent's yard site. There's going to be a premiere screening of a 20-minute mini-film called The Making of Rebelli Melech with an introduction by Hanoch Teller, who's also in the book. He gives the introduction to the book. Featuring Ravosha Weinberger, Mosey Kaplan, and Joey Newcomb with a book launch of The Holy Brothers, by Simcha Raz. It's all happening on Sunday, March the 31st. That's a Sunday morning at the White Jewel on Empire Avenue in Far Rockaway. For information, you can go to the Curran website at curranpub.com. Rabbi Dove Peretz Elkins, I thank you so much for joining us here today. And right. congratulations on the book. Thank you. An honor and a pleasure. I appreciate that very much. And good luck with the book. Uh, more coming up here at JM and the AM as we continue. Uh, Yehudit Singer is with us. She is um, the head... Ah, there we go. She is the marketing and PR manager here at Corin Publishers. She oversees the publicity and marketing efforts of the Corin Publishing House and all five of its imprints and works with the pre, pre-production side on helping to decide which titles to publish and cover design uh, and, and guides authors through the publicity process so they let the world know about the publication of, in many cases, their life's work. And now you understand why the Nahum Siegel Network and Yehudit Singer have had a very very close relationship for a long time already. Do we care to estimate how long we've been uh, professionals with each other already? It's been a few years. It has been a while, hasn't it? Uh, What a pleasure to welcome you to the airways, and you've made this experience over the last few weeks, and specifically today, a real treat for all of us, including our uh, coordinator, our general manager, Miriam Al Wallach. Well, thank you very much. It's really an honor to be on your show. I appreciate that. I, I, I was baffled by a couple of things today that I could share with you. I can't believe that that Matthew's involvement here is only 12 years. 
it's a turnaround that many people would think would take generations. It's frankly. unbelievable what he's managed to produce and what he's managed to engineer. So that's number in one. Such a short time. Secondly, in a world where partnerships become more and more dicey as time goes on, it is incredible the relationship that Koren and its imprints have with major Jewish organizations, with rabbinic organizations. Yes. With, with organizations both in Israel, the U.S., and other parts of the world. And those relationships are very hard to maintain. I'm sure you know that firsthand, frankly. Are very hard to maintain, and yet it seems that they only increase, that more and more are developing as the years go on. Yeah, thank God. I think that's one of our strong points here, is that between all of the imprints that we oversee, that uh, our publications and our our customer base runs this huge spectrum of people right a huge spectrum across denominations across religions you know there are people who are not jewish who read our books um you know our readership is every color of orthodoxy and well beyond orthodoxy um you know our particular publishing partnerships are with um you know like-minded organizations that share a similar vision of the world and share our world's a broad world view. Um, and that's what really one of our strong points. And we're really honored to work with some really wonderful, um, influential institutions out there. You know, we introduced you marketing and PR and how you work closely with everybody to get the word out, so to speak. And then the next paragraph has what I think is one of the funniest things. And that is that when it comes to the Steinsaltz Chumish or the Passover Haggadah graphic novel, the the PR system and strategy is going to be very different for each one of those. And the reason I laugh is because I, I think anybody, you know, hearing this understands that, but sometimes we don't think about that, how, you know, it is very different trying to reach people who would appreciate each one of those things. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the challenges that I find um, working here. It's both exciting and it's also challenging because every single publication that we release is so different. You know, Tani, our designer, said before in terms of the cover design right. that each one is its own baby. What a Koren book looks like, what the Steinsaltz Chumash looks like is vastly different, obviously, from the Passover Haggadah graphic novel. Right. And that is very different from Sherry Mandel's Resilience. Each and every single one has its own tone and it's its own baby. And it requires a tremendous amount of research and a lot of strategic thinking. Is there a week that goes by that Rabbi Sachs doesn't hand you a new manuscript? I'm, I'm, I'm joking only because... Between this, him and Rav Steinsaltz? Because this audience thinks that Rabbi Sachs has a new book every week. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the reason I say it like that. And that's good, by the way, to have an author aboard who people think is writing a new book each week, Absolutely. Right? That's actually, that's actually <laughs> they very... They keep us busy. To say the least. Um, all right. So tell us about what's going on. Tell us about the projects that now in... Uh, March of 2019, people should know, but I know some of them we've covered, obviously, today, but tell us what's happening now at Curran that we need to be aware of. Yeah, so I know that my colleagues have discussed a number of different books that we are currently releasing. Um, You just heard from Rabbi Elkins, who talked about the Holy Brothers, and um, that's a very special work because, you know, it's uh, focusing on Hasidic tales, which is something different that we haven't really done in a long time. Um, we also have Rabbi Brovsky's Hilchot Avelut, which that's the first time in many years that a new book on the halachot of, uh, of mourning and um, Avelut has come out. And right now we're really heavily focused on Pesach. And we have some two really interesting 
also vastly different books that are coming out. We have worked with uh, Jordan Gorfinko, who in the comics industry is very well known, and he is known as Gorf. And he collaborated with Erez Tzadok, who's um, an Israeli artist, and they worked on this gorgeous graphic novel, Haggadah. So they're now touring around the United States doing all sorts of events, and um, they were just at the Sparum sale at YU. So um, we're working heavily on on getting publicity and spreading the word about that. And we also have this really interesting book on Haroset that's coming out. In fact, somebody came in the office the other day and said, Haroset? You're doing a book on Haroset? What's there to say about Haroset? <laughs> but it's a beautiful book, and it's really interesting. And, I mean, it's over 200 there's pages a, of the history of Haroset. There's a history to Haroset. Yes. Simple as that. Indeed. Leave it to Korah to find out about it. Exactly. And then the biggest project of all that we're working on throughout the whole year is the completion of the Koran Talmud Bavli, the Noe edition. Um, with the uh, translation and commentary and notes by Rav Steinsaltz. And um, we are really working heavily on getting the word out about that. We have a special sale going on, you know, for anyone who wants to purchase the set in advance. And they could purchase the set through their local Jewish bookstores. They can go to our website, www.currentfub.com. And um, the set will be released ahead of Siam Hashas. Right. So... The last volume is going to be available relatively soon, In right? In the early fall. Oh, okay, cool. Yes. In the middle of the year, basically. Mm-hmm. And at that point, people will be able to literally get the entire set exactly. and have the entire thing in their home, which is unbelievable. Yeah, it's remarkable. I don't know what everyone here was thinking a few years ago in terms of the timetable for the shots, but there are a lot of very impressed people out there. Yeah, we have news, got- news everyone. We did it. <laughs> which is amazing and yeah. incredible and met all the deadlines. Exactly. <laughs> and the most important deadlines, certainly. We have a great team, really. I mean, I, I saw somewhere that over 300 people worked on this on our edition of Talmud, and that's not an exaggeration, between all of the the researchers and the academics and the staff that we have here, the typesetters, over 300 people, and, um, you know, it's it's really a tremendous feat. It's unbelievable, and, and when Matthew was on earlier, we spoke about the difference before he was here in terms of the number of personnel that was at Koran, <laughs> vastly different than what you just described to us yeah. now. Yeah. And you are probably, and I've said this to a couple people today, you are probably meeting some of the most amazing scholars on a regular – and I'm not just talking about Rav Steinsaltz. I'm talking about those who are in your Beit Midrash, you know, doing all this work on a daily basis, whose names we would not be familiar with, mm-hmm. but have just an amazing brilliance and an acumen that is you know, turning out to be an important part of these yeah. projects. Yeah, on staff we have Rabbi David Fuchs, who is the engine behind a lot of the commentary in terms of the, the liturgy in our Sidurim and Machsarim. Um, on the he, you know, he he produced this um, uh, series of machzorim for the Yomim Noraim for Rosh Hashanah and right. Yom Kippur that are um, we call them mivoar. They're elucidated in Hebrew commentary, and he's a wealth of of information. We have Rabbi Yinon Chen on the Israeli side who focuses on also on liturgy um, for Nusach Sfaradim. I feel like every single person on this staff is just a wealth of information and knowledge and expertise. And one of our visits here, we actually saw uh, the team of art designers and graphic artists and layout editors and all those people that make everything look as good as it does because it's not just the covers. Every page has a tremendous amount of energy that goes into just making a basic page of a book look the way it should look, right? Absolutely. Which is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Anyway, can't thank you. Anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? 
I'm just so happy that, that you guys were here. Thank you. And, we had um, a great time. Yeah, this has been wonderful. This is an unbelievable place, and uh, the growth is astounding. It just continues to get bigger and bigger and make a major, even more of a major impact in the Jewish world, which is just incredible, and it's uh, wonderful to be here. Go ahead, Yehuda. I just wanted to say that um, for all the listeners out there, that we we work very nicely with many different shuls, synagogues, communities, right. and if anyone anywhere in the United States is interested in making any kind of donation in memory of a loved one, then we're happy to work with them, and they should be in contact with Yossi Pollock, who is our sales director in the U.S., and or um, Aaron Ketchin out in Canada, and you could get their information on our website. All right, phenomenal. Corin Pub dot com k-o-r-e-n-p-u-b dot com all the information is there and certainly information about everything that we discussed today every book every series every set everything we've discussed today is on the website so people can find it there and i thank you you did and uh, matthew and everybody here for uh, uh for having us uh in this very special edition of jm in the am i want to thank our staff uh, i want to thank avrami um, for taking care of everything behind the scenes. Of course, our chief engineer for this trip, that's Yoni Pollock, our general manager, Mary Mel Wallach, and everybody for making everything possible. And of course, our chief of staff, Egal Siegel, and all those who helped make this week um, get off to a great start so far. No doubt will be a great week as we continue here in Israel. NSN on the Road in Israel is uh, sponsored by Aaron's Casino Farms. Make sure to take Aaron's Casino Farms on the road with you this Pesach for all your Pesach needs. Plenty more about Aaron's coming up tomorrow right here at JM in the AM. Mayor Weingarten is next with the Israel Show coming up at 11 o'clock. It'll be Jake Novak with Novak Now. After further review, we'll return next week to our airwaves on Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Achenu Israel and Achim Achem, our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at AchimSiegel.com on the AchimSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that wraps up day one of our journey here at Curran Publishers. Tomorrow it's Azer Mitzion and Petach Tikva. That's what will be tomorrow between 6 and 9 Eastern Time. Continue to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nachum Single Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. And again, a big thank you to Aaron's Casino Farms for sponsoring our journey to Israel, our on-the-road segment. Go to Aaron's Casino Farms for great shopping before Purim and Pesach and speak to them about uh, whatever your... Pesach looks like. If you're going to be on the road for Pesach, they'll take care of all your Pesach needs in advance. Thank you to Koran Publishers in Jerusalem, Israel. My name is Nachum Siegel. Till tomorrow, I remind you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.